Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. On this episode, I sat down with my friend Luke Jensen. Uh, I met Luke uh, probably a year, maybe even two years ago, here in the Sacred Valley of Peru, where we have both been living. Um, <clears throat> I think I originally met him in a Temazcal, a, a sweat lodge run by a mutual friend of ours, Kunti, who I also interviewed in this podcast. And uh, from then, Luke began practicing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I practiced for, for a number of years, uh, and I've been able to get to know him through that. Uh, he's actually been a really good teacher for me because he's a, a huge dude, so I've really had to, to learn how to handle uh, that, that size and weight, so it's been really good for me. Um, and he's just a really good guy. Um, it was really a pleasure having him on the podcast, sharing his story. Um, we kind of started off uh, from his time in uh, when he was a Marine and he fought in Afghanistan. Uh, we talked a lot about that, um, about veterans, about the, the, the work he's doing with brain mapping and neurofeedback um, and how that can really work uh, really well in and of itself, um, but also in conjunction with various plant medicines. And he's also beginning to do research with that. Uh, he just published a paper. So we talked about a lot of topics, um, kind of the, the world at large, uh, war in, in the literal sense, but also in a more metaphorical sense. Um, and it was a, a really fascinating conversation. We went, uh, I think, three and a half hours. So that for me is always a, a sign of... Uh, that there's a lot to be shared. So um, I think we actually could have gone a lot more. Unfortunately, uh, I'm, I'm running a dieta right now, so I had to run. Um, but it was uh, it was really good sitting down and, and, and catching up with him and having him share. So I think you all will really enjoy this conversation. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. That's really what allows me to keep these uh, shows coming out. Um, Patreon is a really good option. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, uh, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Um, to all of the people who have done that, to all of the patrons, as always, thank you very much for your support. And if you were able to do that, thank you uh, in advance. Um, I, I appreciate the idea of platforms like that, which are really running on this idea of reciprocity. So if you feel like you're gaining something from these podcasts, then having the ability to give back. Um, there's also the ability to donate via PayPal. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. If you're not able to do that, um, as always, if you're watching this with a video version, especially on YouTube, hitting the like button, um, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, that's a really big help. Leaving any questions or comments in the comments section. Um, also, the, the video version is on Rumble and Odyssey, so doing the same there, that really helps with the algorithms. And then if you're listening to this, um, Apple Podcasts and Spotify are, are the big ones, so following the show or subscribing and on Apple Podcasts, leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's a really big help. So uh, I think that's it. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Luke. Running up from the maze, running up from the maze, running out of the maze today. Running up from the maze, running up from the maze, running up from the maze today. Running out from the maze, running out from the maze, run out of the maze today. 
other part. <laughs> yeah, so I think uh, I think the first time I I mean we didn't really meet, but I think I saw you. We did a we did a Temascal together with Kunti. Yeah, uh, no, I remember you're, that. You're friends with Kunti yeah. and. Uh, who I also interviewed on this podcast. It was yeah. the the longest interview ever. So we're going to break it into two parts. <laughs> <laughs> I've listened to that one. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and then we started doing jujitsu together. Yeah. Um, and that's when I got to know you a bit more, and that you're you're doing this work with brain mapping. Um, but so maybe just to start, you can introduce yourself to the audience, who you are where you come from, a, a bit about your story. I mean, I, I know a bit about your story, yeah. but maybe just to tell the audience and, uh, and then also how you, you got involved in, in the work you're doing and with brain mapping, plant medicine, coming down to here in the Sacred Valley of Peru. And Yeah, I suppose like a lot of people that live here, it's a long, complex story, or maybe not, but I was in the Marine Corps and I deployed to Afghanistan. I was in the Marine Corps for eight years and I uh, switched to National Guard, Airborne Infantry Unit, deployed to Afghanistan in 2011 and um, was this right after high school or? I joined in 2003 right after high, right after high school yeah. I did boot camp that summer after high school mm-hmm. so it was a pretty extreme experience for an 18 year old I think anyone boot camps um, pretty it's a lot and I think it's in a way it's its own shamanic experience how they change you and mold you and take a you know high school kid civilian I'm from Omaha Nebraska and then they change them into Soldiers, warriors, killers, basically. Mm-hmm. And while I was in the Marine Corps, I never got a chance to deploy. And a local Nebraska unit, it was a LURS unit, so long range surveillance, kind of like a recon unit for the battalion, battalion level in the army, was deploying. And they retooled them to be um, like mobile infantry, so like with vehicles, basically. Mm-hmm. And I deployed in 2011. Um, it was in Afghanistan for nine months. I was a gunner. Um, I also was mentoring Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police. National Police is a loose term. It's basically like the army for the city. So they all have AK-47s and heavy machine guns and rockets. And um, One thing about my deployment I liked was that unlike a lot of people to deploy, like we were outside the wire every day. We're working with the people, the local Afghan population. Um, so some people in the deploy, they're just on a base the whole time. So I really got to experience the country. I traveled all around. I was stationed in Kabul, which is their capital, about 3 million people. And I think it's probably, I've heard, it's one of the highest cities in the world, probably somewhere in Cusco. And it's in the Hindu Kush Mountains. They, and um, So it's a very interesting place. And sometimes in Peru, I feel like a little bit of Afghanistan kind of is here. A lot of similarities. Um... So you were nine, like 18, 19 at this time? When I deployed, I was deployed later in my career. So I was like 23, 24, I think, okay. or a little older than that, maybe. And, but still, it's interesting, even at that age, like the responsibilities they put on someone that young. Um, this, kind with, of, this is kind of right at the height, right? Like a couple of years after. Yeah, so it's kind of when Afghanistan was picking back up again. Mm-hmm. Um, so Iraq was going for a while really strong, and... A lot of the insurgency was going on there. Then Afghanistan started happening again. Most of it was going on um, in the Kandahar region. So Kabul wasn't um, as extreme as other regions. We did have some attacks and stuff like that. Um, It's interesting because 
Yeah, it's interesting looking at you know, my mindset back then. I was fully committed to to being in the military, to being a Marine, to defending my country. And the mentality you have, um, like I was fully okay with dying for my country. I mean, they, that was part of me anyway, part of that warrior spirit was also that's trained into you. And so I was there, but sometimes, um, there's times in my career or my life or time during deployment, my, my life was put on the line for um, incompetence. So I started thinking about things like, well, I don't, I thought I was going to die in a firefight, not because someone made a wrong decision or just wasn't, just didn't look at the evaluation. And it's probably the, like, we had towers that weren't protected properly with proper armor and shielding. Um, I can go into details about it, but basically, long story short, is after my deployment, my views started changing. My views of the war started changing. Um, no longer did I think, like, okay, we're going to bring you know, Western Jeffersonian democracy to Afghanistan. This was just impossible. And I mean, they were basically a tribal society with AK-47s or a medieval society. And you could see soldiers. I remember one scene, there was lots of scenes. I always stuck in my mind. But one was a castle that was probably like a thousand years old with soldiers, AK-47s, the ramparts. And just thinking that this combination of this culture that's you know basically a thousand years old is um, deeply Islamic medieval culture with modern weaponry. And it's a place in the world with straddles east and west. It's a very strategic location. So everything, every empire tries to seize Afghanistan. So whether the Greeks or the British or the Soviets and at the time us, um, and that's what they call it the graveyard of empires. Empires go there to die. And I respect the Afghan people a lot because they were fighters and they would never give up. And obviously last summer we saw the whole, the whole thing collapse. And when I was there, I saw this a long ways out, probably 10 years before this happened, because we knew that we were making progress with the soldiers we were training and we knew the Taliban, um, once we left, would probably take over. And... We were the last infantry battalion in Kabul, their capital. So once we left, all kinds of um, bombings happened and everything else because just having the presence on the streets with large MRAPs, armored vehicles, kind of keeps the peace. So in some ways, I don't like to be a bitter person. I like to look at the light things in life. But some of the things that happened, I became bitter about because um, after we left, people died. People died because um, of incompetence in the command, chain of command, or just obvious things I saw that, that I guess whoever's in charge didn't see. So after my deployment, um, my original goal was to make a military career. I was going to go back into the Marine Corps and commission as an officer. I went through OCS, juniors and seniors. It was very challenging training. And but after my deployment, I was kind of rethinking things, like, what do I want to do with my life? Is this really for me? And how would you, how would you describe the Afghan situation? Because I think it's a really interesting topic, and a lot of people, I mean, almost everyone is familiar, obviously, with, with what's been happening. But I think, you know, one thing I'm sure we'll get into is very much 
like perception. We all see things through a certain lens. Often it's it's a lens of, of maybe media that we look at or certain stories that we're told. And so I, I don't think actually many people have a very clear understanding of 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 of, of what happened or what's going on in Afghanistan. So how would, if you were kind of describing that to a person who just really didn't know, what would you describe, like, why was there a war in Afghanistan? What would you say your preconceptions were going in? And then also what did you see when you were there on the ground of, of how would you describe the, the conflict that was, that was going on there? Yeah, so I joined the Marine Corps in 2003. Um, a couple years after 9-11. And at this time, uh, to look back on it, how different things were. Um, there's this whole patriotic fur going on to support this war. And originally, um, Osama bin Laden was thought to be in Afghanistan. And we gave some demands for Afghanistan to give him up or for us to go in there and look for him. And apparently demands weren't met. I don't know the details. It was a while ago now. I'm not even sure. You know, who knows the details of that. But so we invaded Afghanistan quickly after 9-11. And the, the original government, the government fell pretty quick. But then like these wars happen over and over again, this occupation that becomes a problem. So um, I think originally the American people and the military were, were sold on this idea of you know, capturing Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden was never captured, and this war turned into an occupation. And so the Marine Corps itself isn't designed for occupation. It's designed to like kick down the door and kill the enemy. So the whole, I remember at the time the whole Marine Corps being retooled for, you know, training us to occupy cities and towns and talk to local populations, and we're trying to find out like where IEDs are at and try to build up... Um, rapport with local leaders, a whole different way of doing things. Our martial arts changed, so the Marine Corps had still martial arts. Before the martial arts always ended with like a killing blow, and now it was more about submissions and capturing people. Mm-hmm. So the, the whole, everything got retooled for um, occupation. So I came in about 10 years after the initial invasion, and the same thing is we're still trying to build rapport with local population. And this isn't, it's hard for Americans to imagine a society like Afghanistan. Um, there's, there's no sense of a single Afghan country. There's different tribes, like Tajiks, Pashtuns, and multiple more. Those are the two biggest ones, but there's many, many more beyond that. And among those tribes, they have their own clans. So if you look at a city of Kabul, which is like 3 million people, there's many, many different tribes in that city. And they might have rivalries, and you might have guys in one neighborhood, AK-47, jump over the wall, find guys in a different neighborhood. And it all depend on the tribe, whether they like this or not. So I remember going through one neighborhood, and the kids are like smiling, giving us thumbs up. The next neighborhood, they're throwing bricks. And it just, we didn't, we were, I mean, the cultural difference was so extreme, we, we weren't really sure who's our friend, who's our foe. Um, also, the same thing is we had different groups of people come in every nine months or a year, whatever the turnover was. So finally, when you're trying, finally get to understand the country a little bit, a new group would come in and start having to relearn everything. The people that are around were their interpreters. So the interpreters, we hired them, they're supposed to be on our side, but there's lots of situations where the interpreters working for us, 
or they're working for themselves, they work for the Taliban, because they just want to get by. So we were trained Afghan National Police, for example, and I remember they were very corrupt. Um, we had explained to them that roadblocks were not for taking money from the local population. They were, um, when we explained this to them, we explained this to them, they, they didn't understand, like, well, how are we supposed to make money? Like, well, we explained this is corruption. You're supposed to be looking for weapons from the Taliban, not taking money. And I remember one time this old lady approaching the street, and she said her son was captured by local police because her husband's rich and they wanted $10,000 for him to be released. Things like this, like corruption all the time. People come complain to me about the, the police and their behavior and obviously corrupt things. And yet, at the same time, this is the government we're propping up. This is the government we're supporting. This is the government we're giving money to, arms, training. And I think when Afghanistan fell, like the president and his lead guys tried filling a helicopter up with like millions of dollars and tried flying away. It was a really good example of what was going on even back then. So um, there's lots to the story. I can probably go into it more too, but that's kind of like the initial view, I think, or what I experienced. I was listening to a conversation the other day. I don't know if you've heard him, a guy named Coleman Hughes. He's a young, young guy. Um, and he, he does a lot of commentary on kind of race, especially in America, mm. but, but also in the Western world. And um, really interesting conversation. Maybe I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, uh, but he was talking about this idea of identity. And um, there was kind of some controversy in England where this, this black English woman was apparently with the, the royal family. And... Mm. They were asking her, where is she from? And she's like, I'm English. And they're like, no, no, but where are you really from? And she's mm -hmm. like, well, I'm English. And, and it, um, you know, obviously that can be problematic, mm -hmm. you know, when you're looking at someone and not thinking that they're from a certain place based on how they look. But uh, from Coleman Hughes' point of view, he was also saying it's, it's a very natural phenomenon. Like, mm -hmm. like where are you from? It, mm -hmm. it, there's, there's a story there. There's a, there's a tradition. There's, there's mythos and a lot mm -hmm. of that. But he was saying in his example, when, when he, he lives in New York and he takes a lot of taxis and he's always, you know, I lived in New York for many years and I'd say the, the vast majority of taxi drivers are immigrants from other mm -hmm. countries. So it's kind of a natural thing. You're like, hey, where are you from? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he never viewed that as any sort of racist or prejudiced thing. It's, it's a curious thing. Where are you yeah. from? And he was saying he was talking to uh, one time uh, an, an Afghan taxi driver who was now an American as well. And he said it was the first time in his life where he could see that two things that he maybe thought were opposing could actually be held in the same hand. And uh, he because the, the Afghan taxi driver was actually saying that he was pro-Taliban, but he was also pro-U.S. Mm. And that was the first time for, for Coleman Hughes that he could, you know, because we look at things in a very black and white way, like this is good, this is bad, this is one, this is the other. Um, so what was your sense from the, the Afghan people? I mean, like you said, Afghanistan is so complex and there's yeah. such different... Uh, moralities, histories, groups of people, identities, political views. Um, but w did you get some sort of sense from the Afghan people? Because I think we also, we, we look at things in a really black and white way. Like, you know, for example, I was, I was very against the, the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. um, I, 
think probably one of the few people at that time. Um, but it, for me, it was really principle based on like I don't support invading other countries as a, yeah. as a, as a, as a general principle. Um, but I remember, you know, also traveling in that part of the world. And, and I remember being in Turkey in the East and in, a, in a, a Kurdish area. Mm -hmm. And it was very fascinating because I would go into Kurdish homes and they'd have a little altar, mm -hmm. you know, with their maybe, you know, what, Allah or Jesus, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. depending. But, but on this altar, uh, very often there was a framed photo of George Bush. Huh. <laughs> And I just remember thinking, like, wow, this is fascinating. I mean, for these people, he's the savior. Like, when when he came in, he was their savior. Yeah. He was helping to liberate them. And, and you know, so I guess my point is, like, things are very nuanced. Like, we, we like to look at things in a black and white way. Like, the war is bad or the war is good. And, you know, often things are very nuanced. So did you get a sense from the Afghan people and when you were there? Because it is such a complex thing. Yeah. I imagine there's so many different sides to that story. No, I think exactly what you said. I supported the war at the time, the Iraq war. Now, you know, I wouldn't support it at all. But there's definitely, like, there's nuance. I think we were talking about before the post-war and the media has created certain perception to gain support of the war. And... Um, we do lose a lot of nuance. I think we miss a lot of the culture, too, of that part of the world. Um, we frame it just in that lens. I think before that time, I was reading, it's kind of hard to remember sometimes, but we would think of that part of the world and think of like Arabian Nights and myths like genies and things like that. You know, the movie Aladdin came out even or something, you know, things like this. Or um, now we think of like Call of Duty or that kind of thing when you think of the, the war. Um, I think it's a very complex society. Um, as I was there, I actually respected the Taliban a lot. I, I considered them much more honest than the people that we were supporting, the Afghan army, the Afghan police. I tell my fellow people, like my fellow soldiers and Marines, and like, well, they're fine for a cause. These guys that we're training are fine for a paycheck. And you can tell the difference. Like the guys we were training would, would run in a firefight and we'd have to like, stay there and back them up. If we weren't, they would, they would leave, but the Taliban wouldn't. I remember when we first got there, um, they would show us videos of ambushes the Taliban would do. And these are like really complex ambushes where they would take out the first Humvee and last Humvee and they'd be laying down like heavy weapons fire, really heavy weapons fire, with RPGs and you know high caliber machine guns. I remember thinking like, if, if you're in that situation, what do you do? You can't, you can't drive through the ambush, which is a usual tactic. You can't retreat. You just have to have, hope your 50 cal gunners get up and you know, return fire and drive them off. And, they, and they're just you know, in that line of fire. So I respect the Taliban. I don't think, I think it's hard for us to view, like we have this view of the world that everyone understands the United States and what we claim that we're doing. And like, well, why don't we just take our help and appreciate us? You know? But when you have military vehicles driving down your streets, you know, they don't look at that as help. Um, and no one really, like a thing like New York or 9-11, these things don't really make sense to people that don't have buildings over one story, you know, in the country. They might have something to say, but those, these, these massive cities and big planes, like, these don't really make sense in their mind. I remember even our interpreters who are, have been close to us for years, 
will think, oh, we're here to help us out, or you're here to like make us Christian, or you're here... Even them didn't even really understand why we're here. I would say a lot of the soldiers and Americans, you know, when you're there for 20 years, it ceases to be a war of, um, you know, what would you call it? It's ter- war against terrorism? 20-year occupi- occupation doesn't really sound like a war against terrorism. Um, but I remember all kinds of really beautiful parts. I remember I had one interpreter at the gate, who, um, a gate of our base in Kabul, who was, I loved talking to him. He, was, he had newspapers and books every time. I would talk to him about history. I talked to him about life. And he'd tell me about the history of Afghanistan. I remember him showing me pictures from the 50s, and Afghanistan looked very uh, westernized. You couldn't recognize it. And then you look at it now, it's a whole different country. And then that goes into our involvement back in the 80s when we were supporting the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets. We were for, and then this turns out to a radical Islamic sect. So our involvement has often changed that part of the world, in, in my opinion, not for the better, because we often support, you know, the enemy and my enemies, my friends, supposedly, but then these, these interventions years later come back to harm us or just affect those, under, other, those countries in a negative way that they wouldn't have been naturally, they would have not naturally evolved the way they have. It wasn't for, you know, American intervention going back to the 50s even, so... Um, yeah, it's a complex society, and there's different parts to it. I, pr- I appreciate the depth to it. I don't think people can look at it as just one lens. I think we have to be open-minded about everything in that part of the world, and we can't view things through just this uh, this one view that this kind of American view, because the world is a very, very different place. And when you're down in Afghanistan, I remember I remember one time we're patrolling mountains. And I was a, a saw gunner, so I was like a light machine gun. So I had a saw machine gun, I had 600 rounds of ammunition, full plate armor, and we're just going up this mountain. And the mountains are as tall as Peru, and it's marching up this mountain. When I finally get to the top, as far as you can see were mountains. And I remember like our patrol was designed to find like enemy caches, weapons and stuff. And like, I remember thinking like, this is never gonna work. You know, we're never gonna find everything in this country because the the amount of weapons in that country, the Soviets left their weapons, the British left their weapons. It's like a stockpile of tanks and RPGs and everything else, and now we left our weapons. And, um, but in that patrol, I remember we found this little shrine in the middle of nowhere on this mountain. And it was really beautiful. This, and it's a barren mountain, but some kind of shrine. There's green grass, there's a little spring, water running through it. I look around, there's no one here. I don't know who's doing this or taking care of it, but obviously there's people up here. So these kind of things, these little moments, when I realize I, I don't understand this place, but that gives me appreciation that I know my limits and who I am and what our limits are, that we might not be able to figure this place out. And this is a place that's been like this for a thousand years. And just because we think we can change, it doesn't mean we can. Kind of playing devil's advocate on the other side. What do you think? Uh, like, I remember... Um, it was a number of years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago in the Olympics. Uh, I, I was living in New York and, and uh, Nike came out with a hijab, a Nike hijab for, oh. the, for the, the, the Muslim female athletes. Yeah. And I remember in the West, there was a lot of celebration of this, like, oh, wow, you know, isn't this so great? Now there's equality. And 
Certainly, I think as, as a Western society, if you look at that objectively, if, if we were doing that with our own people, with our own women, everyone would be up in outrage. That that's yeah. a form of, of slavery, of oppression of women's rights. And, and certainly with the Taliban, I mean, they, they've done some, some pretty horrible things, too, of, of uh, you know, killing of young girls, not letting them in school. Um, also, when we, you know, even you were talking about how we pulled out of Afghanistan. I think even a lot of people who were maybe anti-war had a bit of a, a shift in narrative when when we pulled out so fast and then there was all of these negative repercussions. Yeah. You know, again, it's this idea that things aren't so black and white, that there is nuance. And even, you know, my, my father was a hippie and, you know, he traveled through Kabul like in the, the, the late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, you can even look at, at photos from that time or, or Tehran uh, mm -hmm. and, and women were walking around in skirts and high yeah. heels and, and no hijab. I mean, even this idea of kind of Islam, I think, is a more modern thing of, of as you said, this religious extremism that's been imposed on people. It's not actually something that's very traditional. Um, you know, you mentioned this really interesting idea of, of involvement, and I know there's a big question, but, but you know, America is in a very unique and, and kind of strange position, is, is, is we are the only superpower in the world now. And it's kind of a double-edged sword, because if we don't do something then often America's viewed as like, well, why aren't you helping out? It's your job. I mean, we, we fund programs all over the world of humanitarian funds and financially supporting countries who may be in need. Um, and often it's criticized if they don't do that, well, why aren't you doing that? And then at the same time, if America does take action, then it's criticized as being, well, why are you, yeah. you know, imposing your ideas on the rest of the world? You know, and I think from your perspective, you're in a unique position because you you have been in that situation. Do you think there is some sort of balance? Do you, do you think America has a responsibility uh, to to help the world in a way, or to to support whether that's financially or supporting in arms, or even getting involved? Or uh, I wonder how that's that's shifted for you. Well, I used to um, think that, yeah, the, with lone superpower, we have a, a duty to intervene where we're needed. Um, to be honest, my, well, one, I've, I've read lots of different things. I became like a Ron Paul libertarian um, around the same time. So I became more interested in non-intervention as foreign policy or originalist foreign policy, like the founding generation, um, to avoid entangling alliances. I think that that's an important point, too. I think a lot of people don't realize, like America, for the vast majority of its history, was very non-interventionalist. Just the, the mentality of the people uh, was very much like, uh, we, we don't want to get involved with the world. Like, we, we ran away from the world to come here, so. No, I think, I think if you look at the whole 19th century, I think the first major intervention was the Spanish-American War. And if you look at the debates at the time, this was a big deal. This is the first um, war outside our borders. And... It's interesting, if you look at debates back then compared to now, how much uh, higher level they were, the congressmen. And, but they said this is the road to empire. If we do this, 
and that's when we took our first colonies and we acquired, you know, that this, this, this will lead to other things. And I think, um, there's a famous book, I have to think of the name, but it's uh, Mark Twain versus Teddy Roosevelt. And like Teddy Roosevelt represented the, the empire wing of the American foreign policy. And Mark Twain represented the non-interventionist. Classical liberal, I would say, um, an originalist view. I think every president for the first five, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, always warned against entangling alliances. And I think it's important to keep in mind that even though, even if Americans might have the best of intentions, we can't always foresee the consequences of our actions. Um, and this has been true time and time again, especially, I say, post-World War II. But leading, I think going back to what I was saying, though, um, it's, it's hard for us to picture today what Americans thought um, for most of our history. It wasn't until post-World War II where we had this idea that we had Korea and Vietnam, even Korea. I mean, this is, this is a really strange thing for American foreign policy that we fought under UN auspices. This, we fought under a UN flag, not an American flag. So this is really strange for Americans of that generation. Um, Wilson campaigned to keep us out of World War I, even though he, that later went away, and then we went in World War I. Same thing with World War II. Roosevelt campaigned to keep us out of it. Um, and we have this non-interventionism today. Um, George Bush uh, Jr., he campaigned to, as a non-interventionist to keep us out of you know, the stuff that Bill Clinton got us in the Kosovo. And the same thing with uh, Barack Obama. People vote for him because they don't want you know, this interventionist foreign policy. And for you know, all the things about Trump and all the... He, did present himself as a non-interventionist. He was against the Iraq war. So I think there's definitely a non-interventionist wing. And, and actually the only president to really follow through with that. Yeah, the only president not to start a new war in probably 20 years or something. Um, so and I think it's important to give credit where credit's due, even the people that don't like Trump. Like, let's, let's give credit where credit's due. No new front opened up under the Trump administration. So I think there's this definitely a, a good argument for non-intervention. I think in the post-World War II era, it's, we have this idea of American, Americans as a policeman of the world. But originally this phrase was ad hominem. This was a joke. Like, we're not supposed to be the policemen of the world. That's not where we are. We're a republic, not an empire. We're not supposed to be going around protecting everybody. But now people use this phrase like, oh, no, that's what we are and we should be. And I think it's a good thing. So it's interesting how even that phrase has changed. Uh, I would always side on United States being a beacon of light that we, have, that we want to represent our best values and encourage others to accept them, you know, trade with them, interact with them, talk with people. But you know, foreign intervention, I think at best, can lead to false, you know, can lead to results that are not good for American interests or anyone's interests. And at worst, I would say that even though these wars are presented in the best light of being a democracy or freedom, that often there's powerful interest groups behind the scenes influencing policy for their own ends that might not be aligned with American people's policy. And I think you've seen this with Libya and Syria, that we've had no, no interest in these countries. And you know, Libya's completely you know, destroyed what it was. And the same thing with Syria. These are tragedies, tragedies that we had no place to intervene, have not helped American people out, have not helped those countries out. And yet, 
du står du så. Do you think some of that comes from, um, you know, with all the talk today, you know, and I've been very fortunate to travel all over the world. You know, for, from my perspective, the American people are, are some of the better, if not the best people in the world. I mean, they it's a land of immigrants who mm -hmm. were, were really fleeing very difficult situations for the most part. And I think that's where that non-interventionalist idea came from, um, is also realizing that the, the detriment of war and, and all the suffering that that caused. And, you know, also at its foundation, America was a very Christian country, a very... Uh, a, a country of people coming from enlightenment principles about ideas of live mm -hmm. and let live. Um, and I think that's where some of that non-interventionalist policy came from. But I think a, a lot of these wars are also, uh, whether it's true or not, uh, kind of based on these ideas of, of genuinely helping people, helping people who are suffering. And, and I think in a lot of American people's hearts, that's seen as a very noble cause. And, and, and so people, um, you know, from, from a, a genuine place of goodness, want to help people. I mean, certainly if you look at, like, philanthropically, the U.S. Uh, gives more money and aid as a country, and, but, but more so as individuals than any nation by far in the world. Um, and I think that, you know, generally comes from a place of, of, of goodness in people. Um, But then there's the other side, and that's when you start to get more into what could be called, you know, like conspiracy theories. But, um, but maybe a, a, a more nefarious uh, agenda. You know, like when you look at, like you, you said, mm -hmm. that the, the Spanish-American War, a lot, a lot started with that. In the lead up to World War One, I, I mean, I think a lot of things people don't even think about, things like the income tax, mm -hmm. uh, that's extremely anti-American. It's, it's against every principle. The whole idea of a tax is, is being taxed on a gain. Your, your labor is not a gain, it's an exchange. The idea that anyone would, would take from an equal exchange, like, you know, I'm, I'm giving you some coca right now for your yeah. time. Why would I give the government any of that? Like, there, there's an exchange happening. Um, but in the lead up to World War I, it was sold very often on this idea of fear that these bad people, if we don't defeat them, uh, they're going to take over us. And so we need to implement this income tax, which is temporary, you know, something like 10%. Always temporary. Always temporary. Um, once we win the war, then we'll, we'll go back to no income tax. But then once you have the income tax, you have to create the IRS, an agency yeah. to actually enforce this policy. And when the war was over, not only did it not end, it slowly increased. And, you know, and, and the creation of then central banks to, 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 to fund these things, to control the money supply. World War II, you know, I mean, <laughs> for, for, for all of the history that we're taught, a huge part of that was this idea of the centralization of power, yeah. predominantly in banks. Um, and, and now to the point where, like most Americans, I mean, most people in the world, there, there's no debate over whether there's an income tax. The debate is how much money should yeah, we, yeah. we be forced to give the government. And even people who, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy because people who uh, often promote very social tax-based systems also try and pay as little money as they can right. to the government. 
Um, so do you think, I mean, and, and again, you know, both of those things can hold true, but, but do you think these wars are started more from a, a place of goodness and wanting to help, or do you think there are, there, there's also much more nefarious means as well? Well, I think the American people do generally see themselves as a force for good, and they generally do want the best for other people. And I think that's often how these wars are sold. If you go to World War One, um, you had, you know, German atrocities in Belgium, and, and World War Two, the same thing. You thought that uh, Germany was going to destroy Christianity, and um, the Japanese are portrayed as like these subhuman creatures that would conquer the West Coast. I mean, there was blackouts on the West Coast every night because we're afraid of Japanese bombings, even though they can never come close to doing that. You know, fear is a powerful tool. Um, and that's not to say there weren't abuses going on in the world either. There's often, there's often legitimate things to intervene. You know, there often are atrocities. I think it's naive to think human history hasn't been full of atrocities. I think the founding generation looked at the United States as not only immigrants, but we were pioneers. We pioneered this land. We conquered it. We, we had this beautiful place. Let's not ruin it by going the path of empire where so many other empires have fallen. Every empire is Every empire has fallen throughout history, and our founding generation knew that. Um, so I think that they were very, these were, I mean, I think many of them spoke like three, four, five, seven languages. Uh, they were very, they're political historians. They studied the Greeks, the Romans. They, they put a lot of thought into what this, what this government and country could be. No, they never had a country. There's never been a country like this. So we just form it from nothing with these, you know, these, all these people, these these men with these ideas and history, this never been happened before. So, but then there's always the temptation of empire. There's always temptation of power. So the American people don't think have that temptation. And I think sometimes they enjoy the excitement of war. There's some excitement to it. I remember being a kid watching the invasion of Iraq on TV. Um, there's that certain primal aspect of human beings of violence and war and stuff like that. But I think generally Americans want the best. But I think the political class, it's, it's a lot different. I think if you delve deeper into the motives and the structures, like you said, the income tax, it'd be inconceivable to fight World War One or World War II without the income tax. And I think they sold it, if I remember correctly, only top 1% would pay the income tax. And I think it was only like a half a percent or 1%. And it didn't slowly escalate, it quickly escalated by the time, then withholding taxes, World War Two. I mean, this whole new, so all these, wartime measures never went away. So the withholding hacks never went away. The income tax never went away. And these things are always sold the best of intentions, and, but then these things persist. I think a lot of people have raised, like, like I said, the, you can't have a republic home and an empire abroad. An empire abroad will necessitate, make it necessary to have um, the same measures used at home. You have a more a regiment society, more controlled, more more government intervention, um, and you can see how this happens. During World War, if you look at Roosevelt during World War II, a wartime economy, you had price controls, wage controls, stuff that you hard to imagine today, but this stuff was happening, and we looked at, well, then they say, well, we won the war with all these measures, now we can win the peace with these measures, and the government should use these measures to make a better population or a better system or a better people you know we always have this especially people in power have this urge this uh, this utopian urge to create you know better man and they'll use 
would you know, government to do these things. Um, it's, it's naive, it doesn't, really, it doesn't really works. I mean, even you saw this during Prohibition, we just allow alcohol and then, you know, people become better. But that's not how humanity works. I think it's important not to be naive about human nature. And I think for us to expect there'll be no atrocities and no horrors in the world, I mean, that looks at, you know, 5,000 years of human history and ignores it. I mean, these things always happen. I think we do the best we can with what we have and appreciate what we have. Because we do live in a place in society for all of its problems. There's a lot, but we, we do live in a time where I don't have to worry about Mongol invasion. You know, I don't have to worry about even being drafted into World War One and, you know, finding the trenches. I mean, that sounds like that's not a good war to be in. Um, I don't have to worry about, you know, the plagues of the ancient world. We have so many benefits and so many blessings. Let's appreciate them and let's keep, you know, building up who we are and becoming better instead of uh, always trying to find a problem. It's kind of in human nature, too, to look for problems and errors and trying to fix them. But, you know, sometimes step back and appreciate where you are. Yeah, I think that's, that's super important. War is also such a fascinating thing because, you know, as you said, it's, it's very easy to, to kind of other people. And I think you said it really well. Like, you can, when you start to have an empire abroad, eventually you begin to lose those rights at home. And, you know, you can really see that, like we were talking about with the income tax, more government control, wars against people eventually turned into like wars of terror, mm-hmm. which is a more kind of ethereal, not so precise. You can use that term much more largely. Uh, and, and now even you see it, it's the same kind of methodology with the war and a virus, which mm-hmm. is even more ethereal. It's kind yeah. of everywhere. It's, it's omnipotent. It's omnipresent. Uh, you can never really defeat it. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I mean, even right now, it's very fascinating because the, the U.S. was probably one of the more free countries during the, the COVID lockdowns because mm-hmm. we as citizens still are protected by the Constitution, by the Declaration, you know, always to lesser degrees, but, but we still do have those. And so there, there are certain things you just can't force a U.S. citizen to do. But interestingly, anyone else trying to come into the country, they're mandated. You still mm-hmm. have to have a vaccine to enter the country. So you kind of see that dichotomy of how it's very easy, you know, when you're, when you go abroad to have all of these dictates and and kind of bend rules, but then how that slowly begins to creep into the populace. And, you know, we saw that like with the the Patriot Act, uh, things that would never be permissible, but slowly do become permissible. And a lot is language, you know, it's not torture anymore. It's, um, Enhanced interrogation. Enhanced interrogation. <laughs> Very willing phrase. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's not spying by listening on American citizens anymore. It's, it, it's some form of, of, of data collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and again, you just you see that slow creep. And, and, and again, I think that's where principle is so important because it's really easy to get lost and, you know, you have the, the, these ideas that were, you'd often hear spoken of, like, well, if you don't have anything to hide, what's the oh, problem? Yeah. And it's like, well, there is a problem because who decides what's hidden? Who decides what's good? Who decides what's bad? 
And once you start that empire, there, there literally is, there, there's no way to eventually stop throughout history until either something collapses or, th or there's some sort of violent revolution. Yeah, no, I, uh, the Patriot Act is a good example. I mean, think of all the outrage during the Bush administration against the Patriot Act. Once Barack Obama became president, you hear nothing about it. But, slant, but quietly, every year it was renewed and elected. Every year they renewed it. And every year now they renewed it. And enhanced. And, and now we kind of forget these things. These things kind of just go away from the public consciousness. And whatever the media pushes, the time or the day, you know, that's what we think about. But, like, I, I mean, I would say the same thing in Patriot, income tax. Um, and people who, you know, people, even people who were against the Patriot Act under Bush, then seemingly didn't care under Obama, yeah, because he was a good guy in their view, right? And, and then that, what happens when the next president comes in? Exactly, Obama portrayed himself as anti-war president, but drone bombings increased, and Patriot Act was renewed or enhanced. We even had drone killings of American citizens. Um, things that have happened under Bush, where people would open arms. Uh, so it's interesting. I think often the political system. Being what it is, where you have two two sides, people are like I'm on this side, so what my guy does is okay. I think when uh, Trump, you know, did assassination on uh, Iranian general, like this was something that's been totally outside you know American foreign policy. When in the 70s, when the American people in Congress finally found out that the CIA was doing assassinations. This was, there's outrage against this. And every president, like four or five presidents, denounced this as this is an American, we didn't do assassinations. Nor in history, like when we fought the Revolutionary War, you know, Britain was much more powerful than the United States. But George Washington didn't have to worry about getting assassinated. You know, this, this is a different kind of war. This is, this is, but now, the modern sense of war, we, we do assassinations. Like I'm just using this as an example of how morality's pushed, it's changed. And, and what we think was immoral 30 years ago, unethical, now becomes moral. Same thing with torture, where this thing was almost unthinkable, Americans on torture. Now we have black site prisons. If we don't do it, we send them to the Egyptians or send them somewhere else, and we forget about it. And where do you think that morality comes from? Um, because I think we often speak about morals, and yet morals are, are very different for different people, for different cultures. I'm sure you saw that in your time in Afghanistan as well, what, what, what's considered moral, what's not. You know, I do, I mean, Afghanistan, they still have stonings, not in all areas, but I remember talking to, uh, I was mentoring a major, he was saying, oh, there's a stoning in a village and two people died, a couple, and uh, I'm like, oh, okay, he's saying he's against stoning. Well, I realized he, he wasn't saying he was against someone being stoned. He was, real, he was saying that the rocks were too big and that's what they died. They should have been smaller rocks. Like, oh, okay. So this is like the more liberal wing of the, you know, the view of stoning. <laughs> um, morality is an interesting thing. I think that uh, I think any culture should think deeply about it. I think the problem with modern media and TV is a, it's a constant outrage or constant othering of people. I think people have a sense. I think it's, you know, humans are naturally tribal. We, we, we want the other, we want, a protect, you know, someone to be against. And, and then to defeat that person, 
defeat that enemy. And then you look in the United States, like with the political system, we, we look at the other political side and, you know, this side's good, this side's bad. And then you agree with whatever your side says and no matter how ridiculous. And whatever they're doing is evil. I think we really have to move beyond that. I think that nuance is very, very important. I think you're know, grounding in some basic principles of you know, your dignity of human, human beings. I think it's important. I think right to trial is, is one that Americans have always valued. And now with enemy combatants and things like this, these, these values are being eroded. And I don't think the American people really n know they're being eroded. And I don't think they really know that what we do overseas eventually comes back here. Um, I think if you look at the weaponry, like I, we have MRAPs in Afghanistan, we have assault weapons, and now all these things are brought to local police departments. So I think we get to question very much what we use with the enemy because then that shifts, that pushes the morality, the ethics, the, the slippery slope. Like, well, we use it over here, so why don't we use drones to patrol American cities just to keep an eye on things? And it's just, you know, okay, then why not use, you know, different kind of identity checks and invasions of privacy that way? So it's, it never goes in the opposite direction. It never goes in the direction of us, you know, waking up one day like, oh, we have all these more freedoms. It's always going in a different way. So I think that's something the American people need to consider as well. So whenever something's encroached, it's never given back. Or if it's given back, it's only given back a little bit. You never go all the way back. You never go back to what originally was. So... But yeah, morality is a complex question. I think what we do in the Valley and Peru and dealing with all kinds of different peoples, it makes you think deeply about what makes us who we are. I don't really have an answer for all that quite yet, but I think we should thought of deeply. Often there's this, this more of a philosophical debate about whether morality comes from God or whether it comes from people. And some people say it comes from God, some people uh, would say it comes from people, from systems, that's mm -hmm. why like, for example, religion is so important because it, it uh, teaches people, or I guess depending on how you look at it, it imposes where it teaches a certain morality system, like thou shalt not kill, that's, that's immoral. Yeah. Um, I think war is a very fascinating thing because for some people, war itself is seen as immoral. For other people, war is seen as something that's obviously not good, but it's also necessary. And then even within war, you have different moralities, like uh, are you allowed to kill your enemy? Are you allowed to kill your enemy if he's unarmed? Are you allowed mm. to kill him if he's armed? How do you treat your enemy uh, if he's captured? Um, you know, even, even like things for, for fighting. I mean, um, some people would say you should never fight. Other people would say, for example, if two men are fighting and, and they have their grievances, that that's okay, that they, they, they duke it out and then, mm -hmm. and then that's okay. But then some people would say, yeah, but then once someone goes to the ground, you can't kick them on the ground because the, the fight is over. Yeah. Like you have to be respectable. You, you saw this in, in early European and American ideas of like dueling. You, know, yeah. you, would, you would shoot and the first person to hit, then you won and that, that was done. You, if anyone was to shoot back, that would be considered extremely immoral. Mm -hmm. and, uh, 
So do you, have you ever thought about that, or do you have any sense of where that morality comes from, if it is something that's, that's imbued by God? I mean, even in a like, more Judeo-Christian sense or Islamic sense, uh, you know, those prophets, if, if you believe those stories, they receive their morality from God. The, the teaching of the Ten Commandments or the, the, the prophet Muhammad or Jesus, you know, they were, they were direct mediums of some higher morality. But then you have more kind of modern, maybe what could be considered atheists who say, you know, religion is, is something extra. It's, it's, you, know, you don't need religion to have morality, that, mm-hmm. that actually morality just exists in, in, in human interactions. No, that's a very tough question. I've thought about it. Um, I think all human beings throughout history have believed in some kind of morality. The question is, where, it's, where does it come from? Um, I think most of them would say it's come from you know, a spiritual on high. I think only modern ideas of atheism have claimed that you know, this is just um, human beings interacting. Or I think all people have believed till present day that this kind of spiritual influence. I think even go back to India and the Vedas, you had the, the top cast of the spiritual leaders. And I think there's a place for spiritual leaders because the day-to-day person, you know, might have a conscience not killing someone, but more complex moral questions he might not think about or put much too thought too much thought in. So those people that spend their lifetimes thinking about these questions or complex moral questions and they, they probably have a place to talk about these kind of things. Um, so I think in some ways it's both. I think we do have innate consciousness. I think we do know, you know generally right from wrong. But I think also culture can change things as well in the time. Uh, speaking of warfare, you know, most European history, we had laws of war. You know, civilians weren't to be targeted. Mostly professional armies. It was until the 20th century had to, to draft and large industrial civilian armies. This was you know, a professional army prevents a professional army. And sometimes those laws of wars were violated and people hurt, civilians killed. But generally speaking, when that happened, you know, people looked on that with disdain. And, you know, often the church or the pope would condemn actions like that. Uh, and that's not to say the church probably had its own issues and did things. But the point is, is us always trying to figure out those moral solutions, to think about that, to have that in mind, what is ethical, what is moral. Because when we, when we lose that, when we think it's some kind of like Game of Thrones universe and everything's a power play, and that there's no higher power, there's no consequence for our actions, I think it takes away our humanity, because our humanity requires that sense, a spiritual sense of moral structure. I think Jung would talk about this. Jung would say, you know, even if there's nothing out there, like the spirituality is deeply needed for the human psyche. So I think those, those moral structures that they do come, become, a, that we believe they're from a higher power is probably healthy for us. And that the atheist view that these are just uh, constructs, but we can still act moral. Yeah, that might work a little bit for your college professor, but for your average person, I think uh, that, that that grounding is needed. And I think a culture that understands that and creates those structures is healthy. I think if you look at most healthy societies, they have, you know, churches and they have spiritual structures to encourage moral and ethical behavior. I think those are generally good for everybody. They're good for the people. They're good for, and you can obviously with these things, you can always look at control systems. And I think that's always an issue. But also I think that a moral structure 
is healthy for most people. So maybe kind of wrapping up the theme of war, what do you think is the, the, the place of war? Um, do you think it's necessary? Do you think it, it's only necessary in, in defending oneself? Do you think there are times where one needs to be proactive? Or what, 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 are, your, what are your kind of sense of, of now, at this point in your life, what is the place of war? Well, I think warfare currently, as is wage, is unnatural and immoral and does nothing. I don't see any wars in the last 50 years. I've done anything to really benefit the American people or anyone. I think these are largely to the benefit of you know, the ruling class. Um, but at the same time, I do think that a war, warrior culture, can sometimes, a warrior culture I think is a healthy thing, that people value strength, that people value character, that people value like masculinity, that men can fight, because when you don't have that, then you're defenseless. So in one way, I do value that warrior ethos. I, I joined the Marines because, because of that. I think, you, I think a warrior culture is a healthy thing. Um, my concern is that the people at the top, uh, use it for their own ends, and often uh, abuse the system for their own needs. I think if you look at so many wars waged are unnecessary, and they benefit such and such corporation, or you know, or the government at large, the income tax. But overall, I would say, yeah, wars is presently waged. I'm, I'm, I'm mostly against it. But I do believe that you know, sometimes war can be necessary. I think, it, I think some of the cultures I admire the most in history have been warrior cultures. Uh, so I guess that sums it up. Yeah, I think we'll wrap back around to that when we get into martial arts. Yeah. Uh, so you, you, you finish your, your tour in Afghanistan, you come back to the, to the U.S., and then what, what begins to happen there? You're, you're debating whether to continue a career in the military, whether to leave. Yeah, no, my idea was to continue, and after I got back, like, oh, I don't think I don't can do it. And my whole life is built around this. And it's interesting, looking back on these things, so much of my identity is built upon this, and how much identity is important to human beings, especially, I think, for people in the military. It's hard to imagine my life without it. Like, hey, I was an infantry in Afghanistan. This is my whole goal. Like, my dream was to be a Marine Corps infantry officer. Then I'm going to go back and go into business. Like, this, these things didn't, didn't work. Actually, a friend called me up, and he... He goes, hey, you want to work for me? And he's a, he owns a small railroad company, about like 10 guys. They travel around the country building railroad crossings. And he goes, hey, you want to work for me? And everyone worked for a friend. But like, okay, I'll go do that for a little bit while I figure things out. And it was actually really cool. I got to travel around the country, or eight days on, six days off. On my off days, I go to Colorado and camping. And it was during that time, I heard a Joe Rogan podcast mention ayahuasca with Amber Lyon. And I was so impressed by it, and so impressed by her, what she went through, because she's a war reporter and what she went through, and, and she had this experience, she went and tried ayahuasca, and it changed her life. And from, like, I was in the Marines, it's so far beyond my reality, but, like, well, okay, well, that sounds as good as anything else right now, I have no idea what I'm gonna do, so maybe we'll get some insight from that, so. Um, what year was that? I think that was like 2013, so not too far after my, I got out. Maybe, maybe a little later than that, I think it was 2013. 
So at that point, even the idea of ayahuasca was very much in its kind of infancy right. in a more Western or world mindset. I mean, very, very few people were familiar with ayahuasca at that time. Yeah, still really early on. I think I just heard about it from somewhere. And then, say about ayahuasca, like sometimes it comes to your life for a reason. All of a sudden it was there. I resonated with it. Like, all right, I'm going to do this. And uh, one of my friends came with me and we... I mean, it was a big deal. It was a really big deal. Like we, we traveled, you know, we traveled to Panama. We went to the airport overnight there, and we just got to Peru. We get picked up. We went to Iquitos, like a jungle city. To say I've never seen anything like this before. And it's funny. I I, I used to date a, this this Mexican woman, um, and you know, so she's from Mexico. And she arrived to Iquitos to come visit me, and she's like, wow, this is third world. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was wild. Like, I'm like, oh, this is nuts. And so it's the largest city in the world. You can't, you can't like, drive. there's no road to. It's only plane or boats. I remember, like, coming to the airport. It felt like Indiana Jones movie. I don't think there was even walls. or like, fans going. The jungles everywhere. Like, this is nuts. And you walk in the tarmac into the airport, and then oh, it was really cool. It was... Um, Pulse tours at the time, and it was a really cool experience. And we, uh, I think, it was our first New Year's Eve uh, ceremony or, or retreat. So it was a New Year's Eve retreat. So we was did. Was Brandon working there? Yeah, Brandon was working okay. there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a good guy. Yeah. There was a lot, of, a lot of cool people. It was a cool time because it was like a center that's like just being built. So it was like like energy, mm-hmm. um, and everything about it was really cool. And so the group we had like. The strangest thing, like, a, like a, four guys were Marines, or like corpsmen, Navy corpsmen that were with the Marines, so basically a Marine too. And out of 12 people, the coincidence of that was just crazy, you know? So it was like, it was a really military feel to the group. And yeah, it was, it was really, really powerful. My first ceremony, nothing happened originally. I was kind of like disappointed because I prepared a lot because this was a big deal for me. I, I meditated. I, I think I ate every other day for a month before, you know, saw all the diet stuff. But everyone else, they had all these amazing experiences. And I didn't even know at the time because it's dark. I didn't know what everything else was going through. And like everyone, like my friend had confirmation in the afterlife. Like people like had all these amazing experiences. I'm kind of sitting there and nothing happened to me. But at the time I realized like ayahuasca takes time to work through you. I think it also is kind of a humbling experience. Like, hey, Luke, you think you're always in charge all the time. And, you know, you're at our pace now. But then the next night was just uh, this all-powerful experience. I'll remember for the rest of my life. It was like a spiritual rapture type experience. Uh, Did so they break out a bigger cup for you? They broke out a bigger <laughs> cup. And there's, oh, I forget his name, a really cool guy. He was uh, in the Zen Buddhism. He stayed in a monastery for a month. He's also into the Germanic runes, and I'm into that stuff too. And... Um, and he goes, hey, brother, why don't you come up and have some more? So I come up and have some more, and I go back to my mat. And you know, nothing's happened to me. I've never done ayahuasca or felt it yet, but I felt something coming on. I'm like, okay, something's big is coming. So I, I walk to the latrine, and, you know, in the, in the Quitos, those areas, it floods. So everything's on, like, 20-foot stilts. So I'm walking, and, like, this, 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 these scenes you remember, and, like, these, like, this walkway, and it's, like, sw- in my mind, it's swaying, and the jungle, and the stars, and... And then I get to there and I see these colors I've never seen before, I didn't know existed, coming through the wooden walls and everything. I'm like, okay, something's happening here. And I walk back. As I'm walking, you know, I, 
I purge over the side of the railing and it's 20 foot in the air. But what I see is the earth open up and black liquid go into the earth, like a thousand miles into the earth. And there's overwhelming sense that this was like negative energy that's been built up into me and the earth was taking it into itself. And I come back and I look out, and like this is, you know, just overwhelmed by the experience. And I look at the jungle and look at the sky and it's this, it's a jungle I've never seen before. This overwhelming connection of life everywhere with lines of energy going through it. An overwhelming sense of awe. I've never had spiritual awe before, but this moment I had. And I grew up Catholic, I've been to church, and um, I've never had an experience like this. And, and I know I've read about experiences of like saints and like spiritual rapture, but I've never had anything close to this. And after that experience, I go back to Maloka, and I see the shaman healing people with energy, like one by one, going around the room. I've never really seen it like that since, but it was very clear at that time. And it was very, at the time became like, I was just into the Icaros and the song, I was just completely amazed by this experience and how it was possible. And that was my first experience in ayahuasca. Um, I think, so I was in the Marines, I lived a very different life. So this, what I was coming down for is kind of just a, uh, maybe some insight on what I want to do with my life. But instead, this whole reality cracked open. And I saw reality much differently. There's a lot more going on than what people think there is, what I thought there was. Uh, I, I saw things that could not be simply explained as a hallucination. Hallucinations, you think like something spins or a color or, you know, it's moving wall or kind of like a, something like that. You don't have complex visions that speak to your consciousness and subconscious. Like, I didn't know how to explain that. And so after that, I had a couple more ayahuasca nights. The next one was very challenging. I even, <laughs> so the next night, I had such a good experience the second night with that good, I had an even bigger cup. And uh, I remember one of the facilitators, she goes, oh, a psychedelic warrior. I had this big cup. And uh, right as I have this, this storm starts coming in, like a, a storm in the middle of the jungle. I feel like the mocha shaking, thunder, and Rings are splattering in. I'm like, oh, okay, I think I'm taking too much. I'm like, I don't know if this will go very well. And I remember my consciousness was totally. I lost my sense of self. I didn't know where I was, who I was. All I know, I was in the jungle on some kind of drug, drug. And I know I wasn't even sure why. Like, I can't remember people's names in the room. I just remember these black walls of energy coming around me. I couldn't see anything. It's almost like my consciousness was like the size of a pea, like an ocean of red, that was like vibrating. But it was what I needed. They say that ayahuasca gives you what you needed. And I needed that challenge. It's this little bit of consciousness holding on for the whole time. Looking back, I probably should have let go or did something like that. But I was just like bracing the whole time, just holding that little piece of my being. And after I got through it, it was probably one of the biggest challenges of my life since boot camp. OCS and I made it through it and I realized like I need that challenge like after the military like that, that challenge I, I missed that challenge and I need still need to prove to myself that I still have that strength to overcome things I haven't been able to overcome something like that in a while and what we think are is adversity 
makes us stronger, you know, and shows us who we are. And few times in life do you really get to see who you are, what you have inside of you. In that moment, I kind of see, like, well, I lost you. You did, you know, you gave me the opportunity to show me who I was to myself, and that's what I needed. So it was a really powerful experience. And then I flew home, and I didn't come back for a few years after that, but it always stuck with me of, of what I experienced the first time here. So what was the, the next part of your journey after that? So I was back in the States, and after that, um, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I didn't forget about it, but it was kind of, I didn't come back for a couple of years, and then a friend called up me up, he goes, hey, you want to go back down, do ayahuasca, a friend I haven't done it with. I'm like, yeah, sure. And so, I'm like, okay, uh, well, I won't go back to the same place, I took experience, but it wasn't Pulse Tours anymore, it was Arcana, and... These are Khan in the Sacred Valley. I've only gone to Akitos before, so I, I called up or emailed the owner, like, hey, what's it like? Is it still kind of the same? Because Pulse Tours, they had also kind of an like adventure tour aspect of it. We were always going to the jungle, which I really liked. I didn't want to sit in the center all day, every day. You know, it's my, you know, I've never been to Peru before. I want to see the country a little bit. So, um, like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's the same. And we, we go to like different, taking on little adventures and stuff. So. So my first time to Sacred Valley, I think that was like 2015. And I went with two friends, and one was like my farmer friend, and he's a really cool guy. He, I, I told him about the trip, like, hey, I want to go, go down here. His name's Austin. He's like, hey, um, he's like, you go to Peru? I want to go. And he was like so into it. So it was really fun going with him. And um, we went and went to Arcana and did three ceremonies, and Kunti was working there at the time. That's when I met her. Um, and my other friend Chris was working there, and it was a really, it was a really cool experience. I wouldn't say it was like as powerful as the first one, but still very powerful. But after that, I saw the valley. I saw like my friend, these people I met living down here. Like, well, maybe I can come down here and live down here. I started thinking about that. Like, how how can I change my life? And it seemed for someone like me, like. Um, there's nothing in the United States I really wanted to do, but kind of living in this valley, the Incans, the Sacred Valley. You know, it's the Sacred Valley for a reason. There's so much history here, ruins. And for me, plant medicines have become a type of magic. I think they are magic. Um, and I still need healing, deep healing. So, okay, how can I get closer to this space? And um, so slowly I started thinking about ways to get down here. Before that, I knew someone in Omaha that did brain trained neurofeedback. So I started, before I was buying machines myself and doing my own thing, and then I went to a, well, you know, jump ahead a little bit. But eventually I would bring neurofeedback in and brain training and brain mapping in to complement plant medicines. I saw a lot of potential there. There, there there's an increasing amount of talk now and in, in, in research and in, in, uh, I think practitioners are, are practicing of um, veterans working with with plant medicines. You, you see a lot, especially with ayahuasca, but but also with other plant medicines as well. Doing dietas, um, probably to some degree, ibogaine, psilocybin. Certainly, MDMA is a yeah. big one. Um, you know, you're you're in kind of a unique position because you are a veteran. You 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 did serve in war. I think there's a lot of issues that 
again, very, very complex and nuanced issues that a lot of people don't think about. Um, I mean, you, you touched on it a bit, even these ideas of masculinity, of, of being in a very heightened state, which uh, most people don't experience. And, and you certainly see it with a lot of people. I mean, you, you see it with, with, with fighters, with, with boxers, with martial artists, that it's very difficult for them to retire because mm. they, there's a certain high, there's a certain sense of belonging, there's a sense of purpose. And when they leave that environment, they feel lost. Uh, they, 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 they don't experience that same internal calling. They, they don't have that same camaraderie. Yeah. Um, you know, these seem to be a, a lot of things that, that happen also to veterans. Uh, maybe a lack of purpose when they come back, a lack of support, a lack of camaraderie, uh, a lack of a higher calling, a, a lack of a vocation. Um, you know, there, there's certainly a, a lot in this plant medicine world is now spoken about, about these ideas of trauma, of, of PTSD, um, really in all people. But, but, you know, I think those ideas really started with, with, with war veterans. I mean, that yeah. idea of PTSD, I mean, growing up, that was the only group of people I, I heard who had PTSD. And, and, and yet now it's, you hear it's spoken a, a lot more in, in other communities too. Um, so what, what do you think are, are the, the challenges that, that veterans face when they come back? And, and, and how do you see plant medicine um, as, as, a, as something that can really help? Because it, it seems like there's a lot of momentum in that direction right now. Yeah, no, I think uh, I really resonate with veterans a lot. Um, a lot of my Marine friends I keep track of and talk to, a lot of them I don't, but um, I think veterans have a couple things when they come back. One thing is a sense of tribe. I think it's, I've thought about this, that human beings are naturally very tribal creatures. And I think being in the military, the Marines especially, is a very tribal organization. Like you, I remember like running around with my crew of Marines is like being on top of the world. You know, it's just, it's just this, whether it's in a war zone or here or wherever, you have, you, know, you knew those guys had your back no matter what. I mean, I had friends that if you got in a fight, you, they would not give up unless they were like broken physically. Um, and you don't run across men like this that often or this kind of mentality. Also, I think the sense of mission that we would have, that we knew that like we're all in this mission together. Um, I was in charge of, I mean, I had one friend, he, he's like 19, he's in charge of a whole convoy in Afghanistan as a Marine, as a corporal, you know, I remember he's telling me a story how a first sergeant came up to ask him from the Army, because the Marines are a very young branch, and how the ranks work, you have a lot of power, a lot of authority, a low rank, relatively low rank, um, so you can't be in charge of this convoy, you're just a corporal, and he's like, oh, no, I am, so, like, you have these, you live these extremes, like you said, maybe like other like martial artists and stuff too, you live these extremes, you have this camaraderie of your tribe, and you go back into quote-unquote civilian world, and it's totally different. And I think, I think it speaks a lot to, this, to the normal society. I think all people are lacking tribe and belonging. But I just think veterans feel it more. I think when veterans come back, they feel it to a greater extent. But I think all people feel that because... This, this modern system is not, you don't have like the close connections we would even a hundred years ago, but especially to our ancient roots, which are very primal. Um, 
we don't have that sense of mission, purpose. Uh, we don't have, I think also challenge is a very inherent part of human beings. So we're in challenge in extreme situations that maybe people are in war zones or just in the military, like, you know, just going through boot camp is very challenging. And we have a certain need for challenges. I think people, it's interesting because the modern society tries to create challenges for themselves. Um, I think oftentimes maybe it's like the political system, you know, we're always at the vote and get that guy out or these, these fake things, but you know, few times are people challenged personally. And I remember the times I've been challenged, whether in the military or, I've always appreciated those challenges because they've, they've developed me. Even though at the time, like, this is not fun, you know, I really, like, why does that happen to me? Some, especially some of the random things that have happened. But in the end, like, this makes you a better person. Um, so I think, yeah, it's that part, part the tribe and part living more of an extreme lifestyle. And how do you think extreme? I think it's a more natural lifestyle to human existence. Most human existence, people, they live this kind of, like, for lack of a better word, this bourgeois lifestyle of convenience. That you can just order anything on Amazon and... You go to your office and work and come home and engage in whatever activities you want to do and always have food on the table. This is not normal. You know, most people do not you know, have this. And I think it's, to an extent, weakened us, you know, kind of sidetracking a little bit, but I fast a lot because I think it's, it's good for the system to have stresses. And we don't have stresses. I think you know, we, we become weaker because of it. And I think that those stresses, the military would make us stronger and we miss them to a certain extent. So I think that's all part of things. But I also think it's a complex, complex uh, uh, issue. There's multiple facets to it. How have you seen the, the plant medicines? Um, you know, again, I, I mean, plant medicines are really kind of exploding in their, their popularity, just people knowing about them. Um, what have maybe you seen from your own experience or, or maybe working with other veterans that is there, is there, are there certain archetypes that, that plant medicines are working with them, like kind of common issues that, that people are facing? Um, because again, that, that seems to be a really emerging field, like plant medicines specifically for veterans. I, I mean, I think even in the U S now the, some of the first trials for MDMA were specifically yeah. for veterans coming back. Um, you know, because it, I don't know the exact statistics, but, but I think vis-a-vis -vis society at large, there's very high suicide rates in, in, in veterans, rates of depression, yeah. alcoholism, yeah. and things like that. No, I think, for one, I think it's becoming much more accepted among the veteran community. When I first did this originally, you know, over 10 years ago, like or around 10 years ago. Um, you know, my friends didn't know what was going on. Like, oh, Luke's going off in the jungle to do weird stuff with jungle people. You know, like, people didn't know. Like, it's kind of a joke, but now kind of, I've, I've been trying to, like, be on social media, which is kind of strange for me because I'm not really that public of a person. But uh, I want to get the word out of what, what I'm doing and, and how this can help people. And I know there's a lot of people that could, especially veterans and friends, that could help. I think it's coming much more accepted. The response I received has been really, really cool, really great. You know, people have resonated with it a lot. And I think the um, plant medicines, I think they affect the human being in many different ways, but it helps open them up. 
So I think so many veterans might be caught in a, uh, a certain way of thinking, a certain because we've been trained in so many ways, and we, we often it's very linear. So come back and adjust to a different lifestyle, different world. Um, I think these plant medicines open us up spiritually, neurologically. They allow new thought patterns and allow different kind of problem solving. They allow us to come in touch with our subconscious um, or our soul, however you want to phrase it. I think these are all important aspects to healing. Um, I think, like I said, everyone has trauma. Uh, veterans, PTSD is no among veterans, but you know, being down here enough, as we know that everyone has trauma. And I think that these things are viable tools to heal that trauma. And I think it's the first step to, to becoming whole. I think that process that Jung talked about individuation. You can't individuate if you have trauma. You can't get past that. You can't get past that. It's, it's literally in your body. So until you release that, then you can start progressing you know, to your own, your own path, whatever that is. Uh, do you have any sense of, with something like PTSD, I mean, you know, I also grew up around the, the Washington, D.C. area. A lot of my family's in the military. A lot of my friends are in the military. And obviously, the military... It, 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 it's a huge body. There, there's different branches. Yeah. Uh, people serve in very different roles. Some people experience combat. Some people don't. Um, so obviously, there, there's broadly different experiences. But but even if you take a, maybe a, a seemingly relative similar experience that two people have, it seems like some people can walk away from that experience relatively untouched mm -hmm. and some people can walk away from that experience in a really bad way with a lot of trauma um, uh, just just very altered and you know and again just seeing it in some of my friends some some people are very functioning like mm -hmm. just kind of another day at the office and then some yeah. people end up in a really bad way um, where do you think that comes from? Is it just something that's completely individual, or do you think there's tools that, that people can learn to be able to better adapt with things? Because, you know, again, war is a very extreme yeah. situation. It's, it's kind of like plant medicine. It augments things. Right. But it's also not inherently different from day-to-day -day lives. I mean, you may not be competing with an enemy, but you may be competing in some other environment, and you can also experience trauma from that yeah. or loss. And so, you know, it seems like some people are better able to cope with that, and some people aren't. Do you, do, have you noticed anything from from your life or the, the the life of other people that that create that difference? You know, I've often wondered about that, uh, especially the last year or two, for whatever reason, because some people, like you said. They can go through a certain situation and be normal, and some people are affected. Um, I think the scientific literature would say that people that have previous trauma, that trauma accumulates. So if they have like childhood trauma, if they go in a war zone, they're more likely to experience PTSD. I can see that, but I think that's only one part of it. I think there's just kind of, I think certainly people are born with different constitutions, you know, what they take. It's a complex question. I don't know the answer to it. I think we're still trying to figure that out. I think probably the best minds in the world are trying to figure that out. You know, what what can break someone and not the others? I think there's a certain um, mental fortitude. So even if you feel trauma, like if you have this, if you decide mentally that I'm going to endure it and go through it, it can be very powerful. 
I think also if you look at history, I, th- I just remember some of the gulags, like spiritual faith has a lot to do with it. The people that had spiritual faith were able to survive. And the people that didn't, you know, um, didn't have that faith were much more likely to die in internment. So there's a certain amount of that, that fortitude, uh, where that comes from in humanity. I think it's a very fascinating question, what, what makes us who we are? Uh, I think we're very complex beings, you know, spiritual beings. I think we know over the spiritual component, and so, that's why I always want to be careful at framing things as PTSD, because we put a label on something, everyone has a label, but everyone has a unique story, everyone's that individual, and I think we also have to look at people as that unique fingerprint. So, you know, also humanity is humanity, but also we all have that individual uniqueness. So, yeah, I'm still wondering that, but maybe you know, some of those things are part of it. Do you think that's a... Like, that seems to me actually to be a really big component, this idea that you mentioned of the spiritual component. And, you know, we were talking a bit about this earlier. We, we, we do live in a very different time today than, than throughout much of known human mm-hmm. history. And, and for the first time, I mean, over the last decades, but it seems like as a, as a whole, we've been moving away from spirituality, from religion. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, you know, it could be correlation, but I would imagine a, a lot is a direct causation that a lot of other issues are rising. Yeah. Things like depression, anxiety, lack of purpose, uh, suicides. One of the interesting things about plant medicines is traditionally there was a, a huge spiritual aspect mm-hmm. to them. They, 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 they weren't viewed in an atheistic way. They were very much part of a, of a cosmovision, of a spirituality, of a, of a higher purpose of a human being. Um, do you think that, that there's kind of an emergence now of plant medicine as a direct response to humanity moving away from spirituality and now feeling like there, there's, there's a deep need, whether that's conscious or unconscious, to be reconnected to spirit? Yeah, no, I think it's... I think that's definitely right on. Uh, I think it's fundamental to human nature. Um, if you look at back at Nietzsche, he said that God is dead. He didn't say it as like discounting God. He says a lament, like God is dead. What's going to happen? How? What's going to happen to humanity? I think he foresaw the horrors of the 20th century that you know, we don't have God or a spiritual guide. And he wasn't necessarily Christian, but he 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 saw the the benefits of a spiritual belief or spiritual structure. And, and then we had the world wars. And I think, um, you know, World War I culturally, if you look at the writing before and afterwards, you know, most writers after World War I were like alcoholics, where before we had this optimism and confidence in who we were. And then you know, Young, you know, Young spoke of the same thing, this loss of soul, how we find our soul, this, this deep spiritual um, gulf that we have. So I think... You know, bring it back to plant medicines. Uh, it's funny because when I walked into my first Maloka, I remember like this is a holy place, like this feel of energy. I've never felt that in a church. And maybe that's me, but I've never felt that before. And I think there's a deep, you know, spiritual need for spiritual connection. And I think it's interesting. So we look at the studies and research on plant medicines, mushrooms, and they don't call them plant medicines in research. They look at that chemical component and what it does. And I think that's taken away the spiritual component. And I think we have to be very cognizant of that. That the, that 
that this isn't just like a chemical that affects the brain a certain way and allows you to psychologically overcome this. You know, this is a deeply spiritual um, medicine. And I've noticed that people that take it that way as a spiritual medicine and a spiritual experience get a lot more out of it. Those people that, okay, I need to be healed. I have this diagnosis from this doctor and this pill didn't work, so I'm going to come over here and try this thing. I don't think you get the same experience out of it as we, if you just surrender to it and look at it as a spiritual experience. And it'll at least be open to it. And I think in modern society, I think a lot of people um, have problems opening up to that spiritual side of it, but I think it's very important to the overall experience. One of the interesting things that I, I think that, that maybe turned a lot of people off of what could be considered religion and then again, you know, many people would differentiate between religion and spirituality. But, but certainly when you look in terms of religion, I think a lot of people have been turned off by the, the atrocities that were committed by religion. I mean, certainly many, many deaths, a lot of division. But also it seems like as a society as a whole, a lot of the people who look at that also don't think about like what you were talking about in this idea that not having religion, if you look at it objectively, caused far more death. I mean, you just look at communism and right. Stalinist Soviet Union and Maoist China, Pol Pot. I mean, some of the, the, the estimates are upwards of 200 million people yeah. were murdered. And, and a lot of that can be traced, I think, to a direct causation of being against religion because when you, and this kind of goes back to that idea of morality we were talking about. When you don't believe that your morals come from a higher source, from God or spirit yeah. or something that's beyond man, then your moralities come from man. And, and man in its highest form is usually government, yeah. politics, uh, what we're seeing a lot now, kind of like the science, that's the highest mm -hmm. form of morality. And I think a lot of people put a lot of faith in that. I mean, it... it it is a religion of sorts, but it's it's the anti-religion religion. religion. Mm -hmm. But also looking at, at the tremendous death that's been caused by that is tremendous. Mm -hmm. um, because even these ideas of like, thou shall not kill or love thy neighbor, if you don't have those moralities, and the moralities do come from man and man's dictates and man's kind of reordering of, of how the world should be, the the... The cost of that, in, in terms of human life and suffering, is is tremendous. Yeah, I know it's. I think people underestimate the. Like you said two hundred million dead under these regimes. I think people forget about it. You know, like this wasn't too long ago, and I think it's really important to remember this is this is modern. This is happening in the modern era. This didn't happen in some ancient times or Middle Ages. This, the the, the century of blood and death was the twentieth century. You know, this this is the modern mind. And this is elders, it's hubris to think that we're evolved or that I think we're that we're better than the medieval man. You know, are we? Like this is this is this is a lot of uh, assumptions there. Yeah, I, I, you know, ancient man could never kill to the mass scale that modern man could. They never had a Stalin. You know, I think you, like I said, you might have the Mongol invasion, but you didn't have like mass liquidations of your own populations. This this is a, this has never happened before. So I think it's you know, very important to keep that spiritual aspect in mind. I think uh, Jung would write about this, that 
you know, we replaced religion and God with the state. And this isn't, we can always look at the East and look at Russia and say that they've done this, but this has happened here too. We've replaced it with statisticians, we've replaced it with bureaucrats, we've replaced it with, you know, like you said, the science. And we've replaced it with all these, we care about, what do we care about? The national product and the standard of living. You know, these things aren't, these things don't feed the soul. But this is what people see on TV and they think it's important. Or you talk about the income tax, now people care about like a 5% change or 2% change in income tax. Such a small thing, but what does this do for humanity? Uh, I think we get to be very mindful in the West of our loss of spirituality because that's not too far away. We think that oh, only a stone could exist in Russia. You know, we could have a stone here, and, and there's nothing to say that we can't. So I think, although, yeah, I think that spirituality is important to keep in mind because that's the really only bulwark against evil. Because unless we understand that evil is something that exists, that exists in the world, the, 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 I'm not a Christian, but the medieval mind understood evil. It would fight against it. If there's no evil and it's all relative, what do you have to fight for? What are you fighting for? You know, I think if you look at you know, those people that had a reason to fight, like the warrior culture, they, they, fought, they fought for something higher than themselves. They didn't fight for uh, you know, some vague idea of some political construct. So that's my thoughts on it. And that's where, to me, actually morality and principles are so important. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have disagreed with me throughout the pandemic, but, you know, I was always very outspoken that uh, why principles are so important is because y you can see how in these countries certain groups were demonized. Mm -hmm. and, and eventually, you know, there's always justification. Like, we look back at history and they're like, well, how did they murder so many people? Mm -hmm. Like, well, they had a reason. Yeah. And the reasons were to them legitimate at that time. And the end result was mass, mass murder. And you know, you saw that in, in COVID. Uh, there, there was plenty of reasons why people would justify certain things, and they all made sense to them. But the end result is you're, 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 you're othering a group of people, you're demonizing them, you're, you're, you're doing things to that group that you would never do if you weren't under the influence of, no. of, of fear, of division. And yet, you have all the justifications right in front of you of why I can do that and why I'm morally superior in doing that. But, you know, I think a lot of that, you know, interesting, like when you look at the U.S., it was actually the religious people who were opposed to those things mm -hmm. because actually they, they do have certain moralities that still speak to them in a way. And, and a lot of people who were for the, 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 the othering, the, the segregation, are the same people who or kind of without those, those moralities given from a higher source. Yeah, it's very interesting, because uh, you can argue, you know, both sides. Like, there's no reason, there's no reason one side should believe in one thing, other side should believe in another thing. I think both sides should be able to believe in individual rights, whether from right or left. I think there's arguments for medical freedom on every side. But one side is going to choose one way, another side is choose another way. Um, also, I think that we, this othering, I think those reasons were conveniently provided to other the other person. And then the people that spoke out were also you know, censored and um, you know, demonized or claimed as anti-science. Whereas, I think even in the 60s or 70s, you'd have people on debate, you had like firing line, these programs where two people debate, you know, opposing views. 
and you know, in front of the public and come to conclusions, and you'd always have like give the other person the right to speak and speak their mind. Now we have these weird, overwhelming phrases like disinformation. Um, you know, I don't wish anything ill upon anyone. I want to hear everyone's opinion. I think freedom of speech is a you know fundamental right and fundamental to humanity. Talk about morals. If you don't let someone have the right to speak, what what morals do you believe in? I mean, if you don't believe that someone has a right to speak their mind in the public square, what do you believe in? Because in my opinion, you don't believe in much. And you have to really think about what your moral priorities are. Um, so yeah, I think that the moral question is interesting, those moral constructs. Um, well, they're not constructs. I think they're fundamental to who we are. And the, the fact that we ignore them is to our detriment. So with the, with the brain mapping, how, what was the, the interest? You, you said you had a friend who was doing that and you were using some of his equipment. What, what was the interest that got you into that? And then how did you begin working with that? Well, first is my own healing. I think I had, uh, I was never diagnosed with PTSD, but I had like, extreme anxiety. And that's one of the first reasons I came to an ayahuasca too. One for search for purpose, but like, I want to figure out like, what's going on with me. And I was never the kind of person to go see a psychologist or get a prescription drug. Um, but this brain science that you can train brain waves, that if you have, it can train your brain in any direction, that seemed to make a lot of sense. And it wasn't as stigmatizing to me. Because at the time, like, I'm fine, I have no problems, you know. Uh, now, looking back, I wouldn't say that. I play a lot of issues. But, uh, you know, when you're in it, you, it's hard to reflect on your own consciousness. You know, I'm good. You know, like... Because when you're in your calm consciousness for so long, you don't know what it feels like to actually be good or relaxed or not be on edge. And I remember I started training with these basic devices. She's a friend from Omaha. And at the time, it was really rare technology. Now it's a little less rare. It's more common. Um, but I was just fascinated by it. Okay, you can put basically put a 19-point electro cap on your head. It reads all your brain waves. And they can say, okay, this pattern's PTSD, this pattern's anxiety, this pattern's depression, this pattern is head trauma. Or we can see your meditator. You know, we can see almost everything within those brain patterns. And then we can train the brain to be regulated, more efficient. Um, and these are all just waves that we were reading. And you can look at a screen and become more efficient. It seemed like a like superhuman technology, something from the future. I started reading books about it. It's a very niche field, but being fascinated by it, and then I started thinking, like, okay, this is, it started helping me out a lot, and I was like, okay, what's the relation to plant medicines in this? Can this be used? At first, I'm like, okay, it's technology, and not many people don't want, like, technology around, but then I'm like, well, maybe there's something to this, because I think, like, there's not much been research been done, and I think people, can, it really complements it, because um, with, with this, we... What we do now is emphasize like spiritual states because there's so much in the mind and brain and the soul, right? Like we, we can, we, we, like we can train these states. We think it's just awake and asleep. There's all these states of consciousness in between. And once we see the brain pattern there, we can train it. So, um, so going back again, uh, I start becoming interested in technology. Then I went to a conference in Denver for the international conference. I met my mentor. He was one of the top people in the field. I go, hey, my idea is to combine you know, brain mapping and neurofeedback and plant medicines like ayahuasca. And I had no idea that anyone would be interested in this. I thought I was just you know, totally out there. And he goes, I've been waiting to meet someone like you. I'll train you. I'm like, 
okay, I never sure what's going to happen because I looked him up and he was really prominent in the field. He had all these clinics under him and everyone, used, like tons of people using this technology and sure enough, he started training me. So we started doing, you know, Zoom calls, you know, once a week or every other week and he started training me technology and he started training me. He's also a Zen Buddhist and he's also into shamanism. So he believes strongly that this technology is, and him and many other people in the field, believe this technology really is the answer to the West because the Western mind doesn't have the time to sit and meditate, but we can show the mind faster and come to spiritual states quicker. And then, so part of it is the brain training, which I think complements you know, ayahuasca and plant medicines really well because we can train these also these hypnagogic states where you go into these deep states of the subconscious and often people see like archetypal visions and do their own healing work there. But also we can map the brain, which is very fascinating. And you know, as the field has expanded the last 10 years, ayahuasca and it's become more well known, there's been more research, there still hasn't been a whole lot of research. And there hasn't been a whole lot of research with this type of brain mapping. Some people have done MRIs. Some people have done QEGs, which is what I do, but usually during the experience. So then um, I've been doing you know, pre and post maps and seeing how the brain changes over time. So there's lots of applications, basically. So w what, is the, what is the history of that? How, how did that, that technology get started? Yeah, the history, the history itself is fascinating. There's a, book, there's a great book called uh, The Symphony in the Brain that goes over the history of neurofeedback, if anyone's interested. Um, basically started in the... The first, actually a very fascinating story, the first brain was discovered by a German, and this was during World War I. He almost died in an accident in World War I. And that night, he got a telegram from his, his mother, his mother or sister, I forget which, asking if he was okay. And so somehow she had a mental idea that he was her, almost killed. And so he, he started studying the brain, like there must be something here that communicates you know, long distances, that more something we understand. And he started reading brainwaves and discovered the first brainwave, which I think was alpha, alpha brainwave. So that's how the first brainwave was discovered, which is a very interesting thing in itself. And then um, in the 60s, a few former people started researching it. But a famous story was uh, one of the first, first uh, researchers was researching cats and he was training cats how to train a brainwave called SMR, sensory motor rhythm, in the motor strip. And basically, he's just seeing if he could do it and reward him with milk. And okay, and he figured out we can train animals how to do a brainwave. And then later, um, NASA was using a different rocket fuel. I forget what it was called, but basically, this rocket fuel, um, if it got loose in the cabin, would cause death or seizures. So there's a certain level for seizures and a certain level for death. So they want to know the lethal dose of this rocket fuel. So they took a bunch of cats, they tested on these cats, and they found out all the cats that were, had their brainwaves trained on SMR, well, half the cats didn't die or they were just fine, didn't have seizures, didn't die. They found out those cats that didn't die were in the previous experiment, and they were, had their brainwaves trained. So those cats, because their brains were trained, become much more resilient to seizures and death. Mm -hmm. So we discovered this brainwave, okay, wow, this can do this. So in the beginning of the field, they um, used it for people in like comas, and they used it for people with like seizures. So this is still um, it's like the 60s. And then the other side of the field, people discovered these more deeper brain waves called like alpha and theta. And in this side of the field, they 
kind of more of like maybe uh, so they're they falsely portrayed as like maybe hippies and out there because then sometimes like hey we can teach you how to reach enlightenment faster and some people think this is why the field got a bad reputation in the beginning um, but I think these people just discovered like wait we can train our brainwave really quickly to go into like a meditative state and also they're tr they also studied inventors like Tesla what were what's in them what's in their brain waves what's in their mind to, to get in this creative state so now we can train creatives or people to go into creative states these hypnotic states where creativity exists so this is kind of the beginning of the field and then in the 90s the technology became cheaper so it became more common and this and then by the 2000 um, QEG brain mapping became um, less expensive more common so now we can all actually map the brain before they would go off symptoms and and kind of try one thing or read brainwaves to part of the scalp. So now we can read the brainwaves in the whole brain and the brain mapping is like a roadmap. So we can see like, okay, where everything's going on. So yeah, it's unique history and it's a very interesting history. And it's still a small field, but um, and there's the, all kinds of interactions and dramas within any field, but it's a very fascinating field. So, so what does that look like when, when someone comes for a session or for a training, how does how does that how does that look like? What, like walk walk the audience through what what that process. So generally, is. like say in the United States, I'll just start there. Like uh, if you go to the neurofeedback clinic, like hey, I, I think I'm suffering from the symptoms, maybe anxiety, maybe depression, maybe I, I have a head trauma, which is very common, um, more common than people think actually. So uh, we always ask people like, you have a head trauma? Like no, no, no. I'm like, are you sure? Because people often forget. I remember asking one person like for the fourth time, I was like, well, yeah, actually I got hit by a car and I flew 20 feet and I got knocked out. Like, well, that counts as head trauma. <laughs> so, um, so usually people come in, the first thing we do now in the field, the standard thing is, a, is usually a brain map. And then we go over your, their brain map with the person. And the brain map tells like, usually we say like, okay, according to your brain map, this pattern, might be associated with anxiety or depression. Like, does that resonate with you? Do you have these symptoms? And we'll show them the map or what's going on. Or ADD is a really big one. And, and, and these things, sorry to interrupt, but these things are like it's based upon an amalgamation of other brain maps that, that you've begun to see like correlation, like this equals this, like this particular type of brain wave equals anxiety. Or it's something within the brainwave itself that... Um, exactly, actually. So you, you've probably heard of EEGs. And EEG is the raw brainwaves going across the screen. That's like 19 brainwaves that people read those, you know, just, just the raw. But we do, we do that too, but we do QEEG. So it's a quantitative EEG where we compare one brain map to a database of hundreds of thousands, or I think only like a million now. And these all these, so we know what individuals with depression look like, anxiety look like, we know what head trauma looks like. So over this database, we compare their age, their, their gender, and we look to see, compared to this database, how they compare to everyone else. So we know what performers look like. So we've taken like all these different people and you know, made a database out of it and compare them. So that's exactly how it works. Mm -hmm. So then the, the person comes to you, you're, you, you, you hook them up to this. Yeah so, sensor. You, yeah, so it's in the 19-point uh, brain cap, kind of like a swimming cap. And people ask, like, oh, does it do anything? No, it's passive. It just reaches your brain waves. It's funny because a lot of people think, like, after it's done, like, why would you do? Like, well, nothing. Because most people aren't used to sitting still for that long. So they think something's going on. It's, it's interesting. Um, so we take the brain map. You usually take a couple days to process it. Uh, it depends. And then 
usually I can say pretty quick of what's going on with that person, with their brain waves. So for example, someone with ADD has like high theta waves in their frontal cortex that can't really concentrate. You know, like someone with head trauma might have like a delta waves, which is usually a sign of inflammation somewhere in their brain. Um, or Alzheimer's, that might be global delta waves. Or someone with anxiety, they have like fast beta waves in the back or maybe fast waves in the front. Or someone has like a, um, and a lot of these things are trauma responses. Some people's brains keep going, they can't shut it off, but this is a trauma response to avoid feeling. And there's different kinds of ways to like block that trauma. So it's called perseverance in the field. So the mind keeps going and we, for someone like that, we take a map, go, hey, it looks like you have like a busy mind, you have perseverance going on, does that, you feel that, yeah, you know. But some people are so connected, disconnected their feelings, they might not feel it. You know, and we're like, hey, let's do some training and see how it goes. And so then we train the mind how to slow down. And sometimes it can be challenging because when the mind slows down, trauma can come up, but it also allows them that opportunity to work through that trauma. And neurofeedback in many ways is like plant medicines because it offers, there's not that emotional charge when working through trauma. It offers like a, like a really like a low impact environment to like work through it. So then, so the neurofeedback is the training of the brain. Yeah, so the neurofeedback is the training side. So I do the map, and then we do the training. And the training, there's many different ways to compare. There's all different analogies. I try to do the best ones because so many people have never even heard of this stuff. But it's almost like I'm a personal trainer for your brain and, or your coach. I'm, I'm not really doing anything. I'm just showing your brain where to go. And the brain is a very intuitive, like, it's an amazing organ. It's really, when you start doing neurofeedback, you realize you have a mind within a mind because your, your brain does it itself. I'll show you your brain where it needs to go and consciously you don't even do it. Your brain does it all. And it's basically opera conditioning. We do a reward system. So it can be as simple as a screen getting lighter or darker. You know, for sometimes for children, they play the games. Like it rewards them when their brain waves in that state. And then you have the deeper states training. We might listen to music to, to meditate. And like once you get that meditative brainwave, it rewards you, like, okay, then your brain goes, okay, that's where I want to go. It's like having a mirror in front of the brain for the first time in its life. So a brain that's dysregulated, a brain that's unhealthy, it wants to become healthy. So it'll naturally go to where it needs to go. And so much of what people deal with, I think there's different assessments, like 40% or 60% of people with like psychological problems, it's neurologically um, related. You know, so so many people like that try so hard to overcome their depression, it might not be your fault, it might be just your brain, you know, and there's constant relation between the mind, the brain, you know, who you are, there's no, there's no fixed divisions there. Um, but So that itself is fascinating, but it can allow people to become the best selves. I tell people, you know, we can make any brain better, more efficient, we can help regulate it. And there's no upper limit either. So once your brain, say you come overcome your trauma, your depression, and then you can start working to higher spiritual states. You can train those as well. So if you have like, let's say this is the level where you think an, an optimal brain should be, but yeah. the person, their, their brain wave is somewhere here. Yeah. Are you trying to constantly bring them back to this space? Are you like bringing them to a lower space to try and balance it? Or like, like what's the... 
What's the training process of, of getting someone into that optimal space? So say someone has anxiety. Usually it's like their brain waves are going too fast. So I'll just train their brain wave like to go down. I'll show like, okay, this is the brain wave we need. We need more of this and less of this. It sounds really simple, and in many ways it is simple, but you know, the brain you know, learns that. The biggest thing, though, is you want to train the brain always in a healthy direction. Um, so we're not, there's no, it doesn't get so complex like we overshoot it to get them there. We train them exactly what brain waves they need. Um, so sometimes it might become more complex because some brains might have like multiple things going on. There's different layers to the brain. So if you train one thing away, you might see something else happen. So sometimes, say someone has like a lot of anxiety, they train that down, and once you train that down, you see the brain has like low power. Because they've had so, many, so much anxiety for so long, it's worn out their systems in the brain. So then you want to train the brain back up in a healthy way to bring those energy systems online. And this will help them cognitively and do their tasks and energy levels. So there's multiple layers to it. I would say a good practitioner is one way I think of it, is you have your initial brain map, and you know optimal state, a good practitioner will take through training the quickest route to get to that state. Because there's many different theories and methods and technologies even within the field. Um, the best, I think, is to always use the tried and true, the most researched. But some cases can be more complex too. Do you think there's a certain balance to brains? Like, like is someone able to function optimally, optimally in different fields? Like, like, for example, I would imagine maybe someone who has a very creative aspect, like you're saying Nikola Tesla has mm. uh, certain parts of their brains that are activated. Maybe uh, someone who's able to meditate really deeply has another part of the brain activated. Um, you know, someone who, I don't know, is very analytical, maybe mm. has another part. Is there that theoretical or, or, or real ability to have all of those different parts functioning in an optimal place? Or is there, do you find there, there, there's a trade-off as well? Like if one part of the brain maybe is more heightened than other parts need to be at a bit of a lower place in order to, to keep that balance? Yeah, interesting question. Um, well, I think with peak performance in any field, adaptability, plasticity, to be able to change from state to state is very important. So it's not so much like this part of the brain, this person needs to be good at this part, it's that their brain in general is really adaptable. That if we can increase the open... So when a brain is less functional, less optimal, it's more rigid. I think psychedelics come the same way. They open the brain up neurologically, and neurofeedback does that as well. Um, now, we do see certain patterns with certain people, like business people might have to have more busy of a brain, more busy mind, which for them may work, right? That might be their gift. This makes them make a good business. So maybe you don't want to train it down, you know, until it's becoming a problem, when they can't go to sleep at night and stuff like this. You know, a creative might have more theta waves, which for that creative might work, but for some people, you know, like they want to bring it down because they can't focus on a task, but they're very creative. Or some people, like poets, might be have a lot of alpha waves that might be like really emotional and but can like really feel deeply and write poetry about it, but 
you know, if we start affecting your day-to-day task, it might not be optimal. So it's very interesting, like, how different parts of the brain work. And that's just cool what we can see. There's probably depths that we can't see. Um, so say someone's musical, we can train that part of the brain, like musicians. We can train so we can hear notes better. We can hear so they can, like, feel into it more. And it all kind of depends on what people's goals are, too. So it's different. I think at first you just want a healthy, adaptable brain, adapt, a brain that can really you know, adjust to different situations. I think the science says, like we've studied pilots, where their brains can go optimal like really fast and work really hard when they're landing, and they can come back down to baseline really quick. That's really important. But then once you get beyond just optimal functioning and start targeting those little goals, those little parts, and want, you know, that's a whole different thing. And that's, yeah, there's more of a precision to that. So, yeah, it's interesting. So the, the, uh, I imagine that, that there must be quite a like a, um, a process of interaction because, like, take that business person for example who has a, a very fast thinking brain, but that's actually serving them. Um, what if you were to tone that down, and then that then they weren't functionally optimally, even though their brain waves may be higher than what may be seen as optimal. It's serving them. So is there some sort of like feedback with that person, like a communication, like, hey, I've lowered this, but now maybe I, I don't feel as well, and so those things are trained back up, or uh, what, what does that process look like? We always talk to the client um, when we're working with them. Yeah. But generally speaking, it's the brain wants to go where it wants to go. Your brain actually knows more than you yourself. Your brain, like, okay, we're working too hard, and he's this we got shown a path that's better. We want to go that way. So the brain will rarely go in a way that's not optimal for you. Like you have to train the brain hard in the wrong direction to, like, to make it you know, less efficient, which does happen sometimes if someone doesn't know what they're doing. Um, but generally speaking, your brain naturally wants to become like a healthy, you know, move towards a healthy state. So um, I would say that business person, you know, slowing down a little bit might, might help them. But I always interact with them and talk to them through the whole process. Um, and there might be different things like, okay, we'll slow your brain down a little bit so it's not so busy, but we're going to help it focus more. We're going to help it. So a lot of times when people have a busy brain, busy mind, it's, it's, it's subconscious. So they don't know that they're often thinking about the thing, same things over and over again. So we often tell them, like, hey, write a list down of what you're thinking. And often it's the same thoughts. So, okay, we're going to slow that down, but we're going to allow your thoughts to be more precise, more goal-oriented. Instead of just having a to-do list, you know, we'll help you get that list done. Things like that. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned a couple times these ideas of like neuroplasticity, neurogenesis. Can you, can you define those? Because I, I think those are words that are becoming more part of the vocabulary of people. But um, I think there's probably still some confusion about what that is, how... Uh, how those things are formed, what's actually happening within the brain. Yeah, and actually the phrases themselves can change a little bit between who's saying them and different parts of the field. So generally neuroplasticity is the ability for the brain to adapt and actually change structurally. Neurons forming in different directions and making new connections. And same thing with neurogenesis, producing new cells. Um, I think the beautiful thing about psychedelics, it's very powerful in both neurogenesis and neuroplasticity because we're seeing whole new network connections open up. We're seeing new dendrites forming and this has been measured and same thing with neurofeedback is that increases the neuroplasticity of the brain, increases the brain to adapt. When your brain can adapt, 
you can adapt. When your brain's working top functioning, you're going to work top functioning. So it's very interesting how both of these things, plant medicines and um, neurofeedback, both help with neuroplasticity. And it's my vision, my, my thoughts are to leverage them with each other. That, you know, say you had this powerful ayahuasca experience, take advantage of that because your brain for the next month is very plastic. You can, it can form all these new connections. It already did form these connections. Now you can go deeper with neurofeedback and train it, train these spiritual states or train meditation or go further into those states and um, you'll potentially have a deeper, longer lasting effect. And same thing on the other end, you know, you can use psychedelics to complement neurofeedback. You know. Sometimes I've heard practitioners saying, you know, some brains with lots of trauma, it's hard to train you know, the brain. It's resistant. So they send them to uh, my friend. She has a shaman in California. They, they'll fly out there, do some plant medicines with him, and all of a sudden now the brain can adapt. And now they do neurofeedback again, and, go, and it's working, and they go towards their goals. So it's, they complement each other. But I think in the future, this idea of plasticity, you'll hear more and more because we're realizing that the mind, the brain, and who we are are so interlinked, and we can't just ignore that. So when a brain becomes rigid and can't change, we become rigid, and we get stuck in these thought patterns, we get stuck in habits, we get stuck in depression, anxiety. These are all forms of like a rigid brain. So when we open it up, make it more plastic. Um, that allows people to adapt and become who they are. I think that individuation process you know, comes through. It allows them to become more of their true self. Do you think that that neuroplasticity aspect is similar to what they're finding with genetics in the, in the form of like um, epigenetics around the DNA? Like that kind of adaptability that it, it was often viewed the DNA was something that was uh, fixed yeah. that it wasn't changeable, but now with epigenetics, they're finding there's a plasticity around that too. That 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 input from the outside can actually affect that. Yeah, no, I think a lot of these things, epigenetics and what we're learning, they're related because we're having we're looking at things differently than before. We thought we thought the brain was just after childhood. It's that's the way it is. That's it. And same thing with genetics that you're born with genes and that's it. But I think we're really finally learning like the, the amount of human potential that we actually have. I think the brain, the mind, we have so much potential that's untapped. I think with genetics too, like we're not just our genetics, we can, we can take control of our genetics. We're not a slave to them, we're, we, we are its master and we can use them to our advantage. And I think there's so much to learn from that. I think we're just beginning to learn, you know, just at the very basic stages of that. So you, you, you did a paper recently. Can, can you talk a bit about that? Um, and, and then also about that, I guess, your work with, with brain mapping and, and using that in conjunction with plant medicines and, and kind of some of the results that you've, you've seen and found. Yeah, so living in the Sacred Valley, there's a lot of ayahuasca here, and there's like, you know, people go ayahuasca retreats. And one of the things we really like doing is partnering with retreats because people come through and... What we've been doing is pre-maps and post-maps. So my good friend Sebastian, he did a retreat in October, and he wanted to do everybody in his retreat. So everybody in his retreat, it's a cool opportunity because a lot of times we just get one or two people, but he wanted to do everybody, so this gave us a good data set. So we did pre-maps and post-maps for everybody in the retreat. And um, one, it's cool because, well, Sebastian himself is really cool he wanted to do it because he didn't know how it was going to turn out. You know, say 
he mentioned like, well, if there's no change, what if it's bad? You know, like we don't, and I didn't really know either. I've done some stuff, but we'll see, we'll see how it goes. And it was very fascinating because all the change that people had was in a very positive direction, but also unique direction. It's not everyone's brain changed in the same way. Everyone's brain changed in a way, for lack of a better word, to the direction it was needed, to where it needed to go. So um, this is my first project in this. We use the data in this to, um, we're gonna publish our first paper soon in the Small Neural Feedback Journal, the New Mind Journal. And we hope to reach out to other psychedelic journals with this too, because most of the data collection with psychedelics and QEG brain mapping have been, you know, during the experience itself. We're not tracking those experiences over time. And there's so much more information that we can gain from that. Uh, so yeah, that's the first part of what we're doing. Can you, can you summarize the, the findings of, of that paper? Yeah, so um, basically we saw, so each individual, there's five people, each individual experienced a whole unique experience themselves. Um, some of the more fascinating findings, I was expecting ayahuasca could affect depression and anxiety. When you saw depression and anxiety in the brain, we can see your depression and anxiety in the brain or the correlations to it. We can see those measurements um, become much more optimal. They move in a, in a more normalized direction. But what I wasn't expecting is we had one person who had symptoms of ADD that I didn't even think about, but we also do a questionnaire. So his questionnaire said ADD. I looked at his brain map. He had brain waves associated with ADD. And then after the retreat, or after the three days of ayahuasca, he had no more symptoms, self-reported symptoms of ADD. And then the brain waves of ADD were also gone. So I've never seen anything published on this. I've never heard anything on this. So it's a very fascinating finding. We hope to do more investigation, but it's very clear in the data. Um, so what we're seeing here is, we're seeing this kind of neuroplasticity allow the brain to adapt where it needs to go with plant medicines. We did no neurofeedback training. It was just plant medicines. We also saw massive changes in everyone's brain within three days. That would be like months of brain training. You don't see this kind of change that's how the system measures it, but it was like a upwards of 60% change in three days, which is a huge amount of neuroplasticity with how we measure it. Usually, you know, people don't change, you know, 10%, you know, over a day period. Um, so we're seeing you know, all kinds of interesting data, and we'll do further research on this, but as, a, as an initial study, initial, you know, um, initial research project, we're going to do more upon what we've received, what we've learned. Um, trying to think of any of the other interesting things. I think each individual brain map, um, each person showed their individual, uh, their patterns change individually. So one person, he had low power, which usually is a very hard pattern to work with because this pattern means that the mitochondria aren't functioning as well, that there's been like stress, or something that's alcohol abuse or drug abuse. The brain's literally working at a lower power level. And these are some of the hardest brains to train because we have to train these brains for usually an extended period of time and usually have a really good diet to get that brain at proper power level. But this person changed in three days, which I've never even heard of. So yeah, it's really, these medicines are really powerful and it's really fun doing this kind of research on them. Do, do you have a sense of, or, or has there any, has there been any research in, in terms of um, how long those effects last? And I mean, I, I imagine that's where this topic that's become, I think, a big uh, important topic that's being discussed in 
working with plant medicines is this idea of, of integration, of an, in, uh, uh, a period following the actual experience, which you were mentioning, mm-hmm. where there is this process of neurogenesis, neuroplasticity mm-hmm. happening, and that that's a really important time to be able to actually um, allow the effects of the, the plant medicine to take root. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, often... Because often this 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 work isn't necessarily described in in the same language as, as like what we would call science, um, but often there's these metaphors used, which which I'll use myself, um, and kind of this idea that that after working with a certain plant, uh, it's kind of like a seed has been planted, and then mm-hmm. that integration period it's really important if you want to, and certainly you don't have to, but if you want that seed to grow, you have to give it adequate water, you have to give it good soil, good fertilizer, it has to have proper sunshine so that it can really begin to root and sprout and grow. And obviously, as more time goes by, just like planting a plant or a tree, Mm -hmm. in the beginning you have to care for it more, but as time goes on, less and less, and then eventually one day that that plant is a tree and it's giving you shade and fruit and yeah. medicine and flowers and it, it's wood. So do, do you have any sense of, uh, I mean, it's a big question, and obviously uh, so much is going to be dependent on what the plant is, how long they're working for with it, what's the intensity yeah. they're working with it, but but do you have any sense of, 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 of that post-plant experience uh, Time frame, you know, that's one. Of, that's one of the things I really want to research more because I've gone to the literature on this. And there seems to be most of the literature is based on like questionnaires, and I think most. I think there's still only a limited number of studies on this, and usually goes to six months out. And usually six months out, most of the people have experienced like still experienced a substantial change. Um, now, what we want to do is, I would love to. Establish some studies where we're doing six months out with brain maps and questionnaires, and maybe a year out or two years out, and different time frames. So a month out, three months out, six months out. Um, my feeling is this kind of a gut feeling and some experience, some of my personal experience that you know sometimes these these experiences for some people fade over time. For me, it was one of them. This is one of the reasons I want to do neurofeedback is that I feel great for three months, I feel spiritually connected, and it started fading. Now. I wish I would have done meditation or yoga or something after those first experiences. I think that would really helped out because I think, like you were saying, it's a plant. I think the the full the soil is very fertile, like a month, two months, three months after that first experience, and that's when I think it's a very good idea. Like take advantage of it. You know, like you had this experience, take advantage of it, use that experience because, like you said, your brain is very plasticistic right now. You're in a spiritual state. You have that energy going through you. It's a very opportune time to take advantage of it. But as far as experience goes, I think it's different for different people. And I think that's to be one of the major questions in the field, uh, especially what I'm doing, is like, what makes some people, because I think some people can last a lifetime, or some people you know, might need to come back and go on a longer dieta or, or you know, longer experience or come back more often. And what's the difference between those people? And maybe there's a difference in the brain. This is what I'm interested in too. Maybe there's a different brain pattern. Maybe you can look at one brain pattern, okay, this person, this plant medicine will work well for them. Or this person, this plant medicine worked well for them. Or maybe the plant pattern, like, okay, this, this person might need more work. Or this person might need, like, this person probably just has one experience that's good. And we don't, we don't really know that question yet, but I think it's, I think that's what we'll research in the future, whether we're doing or someone else is doing it. I think this will be a critical part to the puzzle of plant medicines because then we can quantify 
you know, what it's like. You know. And I think for us, we live down here, we appreciate it, we know this stuff is powerful, but that quantification for the Western mind will be important. Like, you approach, you know, the, the public or the scientific community, like, okay, now we have the data, this is what it is. And I think once you have the data and present it, you know, you can, you can debate it, but there's the data, you know, that's what it is. And that's, that's what we've discovered. And if you want to do your own study and recreate that data and see if you find something different, go ahead. But this is what we found. Do you foresee that being a kind of a big part of your work is, is now working with people who work with plant medicines, uh, seeing that neurogenesis, that neuroplasticity, and then using the, the, the brain map training to kind of maintain those states? Because the, as you said, the soil is already very fertile, that there's already been a change, and then it's much easier for people to begin to maintain that? Yeah, I, I would think that's one of the big things that we, our goals to do, because we think it would work perfectly for that. Now, that's not to say that neurofeedback is the only solution to that or the only thing that fits into that. I think if people have yoga or meditation or things, things like that, but people with severe trauma, I will say this, neurofeedback can like reach farther and faster in, in a deeper way than you know other practices just because the trauma blocks so much. It's harder to meditate when you have trauma. It's harder to do other things when you have trauma, where we can train these deep states faster. But that's not to say that you can't, like all these other other things are really good. So in that time frame, I think it's really good to do any of these things. But I think neurofeedback for us that's that's our specialty. And I think we'll take advantage of that neurogenesis to train the brain to. And this is what we're working on right now. Actually, we're doing a little project uh, with a volunteer, and he just did ayahuasca for a week, and we're training in these deep states. And when we train him in these deep states, for one, he was able to go down to this deep state right away, which is really unusual. This is most likely because he did ayahuasca so recently that he was able to, because usually it takes people time, especially if people with trauma, there's a resistance. They don't want to go into that subconscious state because there's pain or suffering there. So there's a subconscious resistance. But anybody has some challenges getting to these states, but he was able to do it right away. And his experiences, he was talking about how he still feels ayahuasca, that, that spiritual presence of ayahuasca. And it's fun for me because this is exactly what I was hoping for, you know, with a client. Like, you're able to tap into that previous experience of ayahuasca. So just fading away as a memory, we're all taking these deep states and that, yeah, that connection deepen and continue. So that's, yeah, that's our goal. Do you, do you have you found or do you have any sense if, if certain plants are... Uh, maybe more beneficial for that that brain training, or do you think just different plants are working uh, in different ways with the brain? Um, because even within plant medicines, there's certainly ayahuasca has been spoken a lot about, uh, but here where we are, there's also wachuma or San Pedro, yeah. you have peyote, you have tobacco, you have uh, iboga. And then you also have all sorts of uh, synthesized medicine yeah. as well, things like MDMA, psilocybin, um, some people are working with ketamine as well. Um, do, you, do you have any sense around those? No, it's, it feels like the Wild West because there's a lot of research to be done. Um, I am getting the sense, so ayahuasca is kind of star right now probably with maybe MDMA and mushrooms. That's where most of the research has gone. Um, Wachuma, for example, there's been basically none, as far as I can tell, unless there's some studies out there that are really very deep. Um, I think there's been hardly read anything, maybe just one. And I think there's a lot of research potential there. I think each of these plants have their own spirit and their own unique ways of affecting people. 
um, how that combines with neurofeedback, I'm not really sure yet. Um, I'm definitely interested in researching it more because I've seen different patterns with different plants. And one I want to research more is Wachuma. Um, I think we're getting brain mapping patterns that, as far as I can tell, no one's written about it at all. There's been no, there's no literature on it. Um, and mescaline in general, which each of these plants have different things than just mescaline, but even mescaline is very, there's not much written about. Even though with Huxley in the beginning of the psychedelic movement, mescaline was kind of the plant. But since the 60s, there's been different focuses. So I think Wachuma is going to be fun to research and how these plants affect people individually. It'll be interesting because we might find, like, um, like I said before, that, hey, Wachuma is really good for PTSD. That's a really good heart opener. That's a really good plant. You know, or um, well, ayahuasca is good for this type of trauma, like childhood trauma or something. We, we don't know. I think it'll be very fascinating. Um, actually, I think it'll also be fascinating that things we don't think about, like I said before, ADD and attention. We had no idea that I did it in the ayahuasca. As far as anyone else I know, like, I've never seen anything on it. And I've re I started looking it up once I found this data. No one's written anything on it as far as I can tell. If someone knows, let me know. But then we might find things that we don't, we haven't thought of. It wasn't, it wasn't intuitive to me that taking ayahuasca helps someone focus. But then I asked my mentor about it, like, well, is ADD like a symptom of like trauma or, you know, these kind of things? Like, well, actually it can be because, you know, we have trauma, it's harder to focus, and it can be part of that. So different types of ADD will also be um, interesting in research. Do you have any sense, uh, I mean, this is a, something that's also being thought or debated a lot, um, is this difference between, one, working with, with plants in their whole form, like ayahuasca, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it can be taken as a single plant. Most often it's taken as, as a brew, a combination yeah. of two plants, uh, you know, something like uh, tobacco in its whole form, something like iboga in its whole form, wachuma in its whole form, um, peyote in its whole form, mushrooms in its whole form, versus uh, synthetic psilocybin or ibogaine, the active alkaloid, mm. or nicotine, yeah. or dimethyltryptamine. Um, so one, working with the whole plant versus the, the synthetic alkaloid and also working with something that's synthesized in what's usually very much being explored now in this kind of medical or psychological setting. I mean, even, even a lot of the work that's being done by some of these organizations like MAPS, uh, you, you need a psychologist present. So yeah. it, it's very much a psychologized model of the work um, versus what may be described as a more shamanic or ceremonial or ritualistic way of the work, which could involve, uh, especially w with a lot of these plants, things like songs or ikaros yeah. or music. I mean, you, you see this a lot in iboga and, and also ayahuasca, things like ritual. Um, working maybe even with other plants in conjunction of that, the, the ceremonial aspect of it, the, 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 the spiritual aspect, the fasting, the, the restrictions. Yeah. You know, there's a lot more that goes into it necessarily than just the alkaloid. Do you, do you have any sense of, um, like, like from a brain perspective, do you think there are benefits and, and negatives of each of those and what those are and, and, and also... Um, with the work you're doing, what direction that's going in? Is it is it kind of you're just looking at everything and seeing what works, or do you have any sense of what potentially could be more beneficial? 
Yeah, no, interesting because I'm, I'm writing about this a little bit because, uh, like you said, so much of what's going on now is like the psychologizing of it in a psychological setting. And most of the research, I'd say 90% of the research is in a clinical setting with just an alcohol. I just because you can see the benefits of it for research, you can measure it really easily, and everyone's in a room and they have this experience. Um, the kind of research we're doing, which I want to emphasize, is yeah, I want to do field research. I want to do it with the shaman, with the Icaros, with the whole thing. It might be hard to quantify, but this kind of research is very important too. I want to see what's you. Know. And for me, I've I've experienced these things in a certain way. I've I've had shamans like come through my energy field and pulling out blockages, and I've seen that happen. So I know for me, it's more than just an alkaloid. So I think the shaman part is very important. I've seen their songs go and heal people. I felt healed by their songs. I felt you know, powerful, powerful energy during their personal growth. So I do believe that the whole experience together is the most beneficial. Um, and I think when you take the spiritual component out of it and psychologize it, it's kind of runs the same problem the whole 20th century, that we just make this just like an like abstract science instead of a visceral, spiritual, soul experience. And I think psychology in many ways is a spiritual experience for the modern mind because they can't, they're not ready for the true spiritual experience yet. They're not ready for it. Their mind is, doesn't, doesn't believe it can exist, or they're trying to find some healing in a different way. But I think traditionally, which is traditional way these medicines have been used, the way we should look at using them. I think to, to isolate that alkaloid, isolate that part of it, and to take it with a clinical setting. Yeah, I think people can get benefit from that, and I think that's probably healthy. But um, I think one of the reasons for that is, probably multiple reasons. I think this kind of scientism, this overly emphasis on, you know, this, this scientific, I would say science because we're doing science. Like science is merely observation, but this kind of like, it's putting science on this level that this is everything and then that everything has to fit into this supposed model, which I don't think is a model at all, but the perceived model of a clinical setting, a psychologist, that people feel more comfortable with that than, you know, maybe going with a shaman and the jungle somewhere, or even a shaman and wherever, I think. But I think that's a more natural experience. And I also think that, you know, probably people are dealing with the laws, and I think they probably think that the laws in the United States are easily, um, you use a psychological route to be able to use these medicines, but I, I don't think that's the right path. I think it's everyone's right to be able to use what they want, and I think it's their, you know, their, their God-given right. Their natural right to be able to ingest what they want, and no one should be able to say anything. To so I think that them using it for like, hey, I should be able to use it because I have this psychological condition. You, know, you should have the right to use it anyway because you're a human being, and that's your right. So that's my thoughts on it. So where where do you see this work going for for you, and and kind of as society at large? Do you do you think this is kind of uh, uh, something that's really on the frontier and is, is really on the precipice of becoming much more common? Or do you think it's still kind of a niche thing that, that's only going, going to appeal to certain people? What, what, what's your sense of... And there's, there's two sides to this. I feel like neurofeedback in many ways is cutting edge of neuroscience. It's applied neuroscience. And the people in the field, we've, they have such amazing, especially the people who've been in it for a long time, they've had such amazing results. I think, okay, any day now, people come, will know about this science, it'll become popular, and everyone will know about it. But there's lots of resistance because no one, 
whole different kind of, um, it's a whole different field that no one's really heard of. And you're going against a medical establishment, you're going against a pharmaceutical establishment. And these things have all been, have government funding, university funding, or you know, brain training, QEGs, neurofeedback. This is kind of just like a weird outlier, like the Wild West. Um, I think it's become much more common in the last 10, 20 years, but still not, you know, these pharmaceutical companies have billions and billions of dollars to invest in new drugs. There's nothing like that in our field. And psychedelics, the same way, I think it's become much more common in the last 10 years, but, you know, still most people haven't experienced it or I think it's still the outlier. Um, as I say that, I do believe that these are the frontiers of the 21st century. I think this will be, hopefully, the century of like consciousness, because I think we've explored everything else. We've, you know, we have our technology has given us everything, but we, now we need to like focus on the soul. And I think consciousness is such a hard problem that we've basically just ignored, but now it's really coming clear that we don't know what's going on. We can't explain even the basics of consciousness. And I think then. I think psychedelics emphasize that. that. Before we didn't know much, but psychedelics emphasize like, well, how is this stuff doing what it does? We don't know. Or plant medicines. We don't, we don't know how, we don't know the mechanism. We know basic brain chemistry, but how does that brain chemistry relate to the actual experience and perception? You know, so I think this, is, this will be the frontier. And whether it catches on 10 years from now or 50 years from now, at some point, I think there'll be some kind of turning point where people start to get it. People like focus, okay, there's something going on here with consciousness. We aren't just uh, biological beings that just live and die, that there's something, some other essence going on to our consciousness, our souls. And I think it'll become more obvious. I think science has already confirmed it, but the public and the scientific establishment you know, ignores that. But I think more and more it'll become more obvious that Consciousness is non-local, and this can easily be proven through, you know, um, I think psi experiments have proven this very well. And actually, there's brain mapping experiments. I want to recreate them. Where they'll have like um, a remote healer heal somebody, and, and then that person will have an increase in delta waves. I want to find, I want to rerun that experiment to, you know, to confirm that data. But I've I've read the studies on that. So something about consciousness is non-local. I think the future of science will have to address it. Otherwise, there'll be no progress. Otherwise, science will be stagnant. A lot of what we consider science, especially in, in, in more Western cultures, we, we trace it back often like to the Greeks. Mm -hmm. And even, even this idea of psyche, which were, you know, psychology, psychiatry, mm -hmm. psychedelics, mm -hmm. um, it's often translated as, as just mind. Uh, but from my understanding, the, the root of, of, of psyche actually entailed mind, body, spirit, mm -hmm. which is really what shamanic traditions are pointing towards. Right. To, towards there's this there's there's this interrelation between the, the body, the mind, and spirit. And in a lot of Western systems, we we look at physical ailments one way. You'd, you'd go to a more allopathic doctor if you have psychological ailments. You go to a psychiatrist, a psychologist. Uh, but we have been really cut off from this idea of spirit, or or where we relegate the realm of spirit to something which is religion, which is also kind of uh, a separate yeah. thing. Um, but even for the Greeks, the, the, these things were interrelated. And it, it kind of goes back to this idea that, um, you know, the, these shamanic traditions were everywhere. All, all cultures have them. And, 
It's just some cultures have become lost or disconnected from them. One of the things you were mentioning to me that you were interested in is kind of the, these more like Northern European or Scandinavian um, shamanic traditions. What, what interests you about those and, and what have you found in those that, that you find interesting? Yeah, so I, um, like my friend Austin came down with me one of the first times. Actually, we had quite an adventure. We went to the jungle together and we went deep in the jungle. Like there was, we went to a tribe to backtrack a little bit, like um, after the Sacred Valley, my friend and I, the shaman, met, Facebook messaged us from the jungle, which only in the modern era can you have a shaman just face message you. He goes, hey, you want to come do ayahuasca with us? And, and if you, I don't know if you remember, but there was a Canadian that was killed uh, tragically in the jungle like a few months before. There was a couple, the, the one who was kind of killed by the, the, the local people yeah. from shooting the, the, yeah. the Olivia. It's a really tragic story. But anyway, at the time, like, everyone was like, Ayahuasca's dead, and no one's, this is in the Pacalpa area, no, no one was around. So, like, the shaman called us up, like, hey, you want to do Ayahuasca? And, you know, he's a farmer, I'm a Marine, like, yeah, we'll go down there. And we didn't know any Spanish, we didn't know any English. We're the first people to ever do Ayahuasca with this tribe. And it was very, very powerful. And we're both into the runes, so kind of the overall Germanic tradition, because the runes go back, like, thousands of years before the for like the Viking Age, which most people associate it with, but you know, you have that too. So also you have these, you know, indigenous European traditions that were around for the Christian era, which we're both called to, we're both into. My friends taught me so much and I'm into it too. And um, so I remember we were like in the, I feel like the edge of the world. Like I never did anything like it. I never had ayahuasca ceremonies that powerful either. And um, I remember these runes would come to life during the ceremony. So I would see the essence of them. I would see the colors of them. I'll just focus on one rune for the ceremony. And I realized like these are deep spiritual roots that exist in Europe, um, that we always look to the outside. We always look for the East and in ayahuasca. And all those things have their benefit. I love it. But it's also important to look back at what we have, our traditions and who we are. Because especially in the modern world, we've become so rootless. And, I think the power structure wants us to be like rootless consumers and don't think about your past, don't think about your history, that you're just this atomized individual and you just consume and go through your life and work your job, don't think too hard about how the whole thing works. Uh, so I think when you reach down to those, those your own indigenous traditions, because we have our indigenous, we always think that everyone else, they're indigenous, but we're indigenous, we have our own indigenous traditions. and. We've been programmed to ignore them or even be embarrassed by them. Like, okay, like this is just... But there's a lot of ancient wisdom there. And you read these, the sagas and the ancient writings, like, wow, they, they, they had a lot to say. And I think it's much more of our natural tradition. I think if you look at the coming Christianity, um, in many ways it was unnatural. It, was, it, was not, it was not, did not originate in the, like the, the forest of Germany or things like this, avoided from the desert. It's a very different feel to, to its religion than in our native traditions. So um, how, how would you describe that? Like, the, like what are the ruins? What, what, what have you found in those traditions? Like, uh, like how would you summarize their beliefs or practices or things that you found that have been really interesting? Well, the runes, I think you can look at the runes as many ways... Um, the Christian might meditate on like the Stations of the Cross, for example. So each rune represents something very deep and complex, and you can meditate on the rune. And, and these, 
I think um, Rupert Sheldrake has coined the term morphogenic resonance, if you're familiar with it, that there's a deep, that everything has a, a resonance to it. I think this involves spirituality. So there's deep resonances to who we are that are deep roots, that even though they've been gone for a long time, that they resonate with us. It's a deep spiritual resonance. And unfortunately, we've lost so much because... Um, you know, the Christian era destroyed and burned lots of things, but there's also a lot there. There's a lot of wisdom there. So it's our myths, and there's wisdom in our myths, just like there's wisdom in everyone's myths. Um, so our myths aren't, they're designed to speak to us. And we look at those myths, we, we talk about morality and who we are. Uh, we can find that kind of like the ethics our ancestors struggled with. And these aren't just small things. These are things that we apply today. These aren't just... Um, you know, stories that are deeply embedded into the psyche. These, these are archetypes. These are myths with a capital M. These aren't like small lowercase myths. There's like a legend or something that's not true. These are like a capital M myths that Jung talked about. It speaks to our archetypal soul. So I think those, those archetypes exist. Every culture has its archetypes. I look at the, the Peruvians and they have their own archetypes. You know, when in the jungle, like these things speak to them. They live very much, when they have their ayahuasca ceremony, they see jaguars, they see anacondas, these archetypes. And I think we have our own archetypes. And um, for me, it's, you know, wisdom is also exploration, not to ignore our roots and where we come from. You know, our, it's, it's a pay homage to our ancestors. And so much of us, like, we're embarrassed to say ancestors, but, you know, Every other culture talks about ancestors. They brag about it all the time, the ancestors. But for some reason, like we like, oh, our ancestors. I don't, yeah, I don't know about that. Or we'll, have, we'll come down to ayahuasca with them, but like we talk about our own stuff. But what I show, I what I show the runes to the, you know, to people here. Uh, they they love it. They they're intrigued by it. They're fascinated by our art. So I think you know to have confidence of who we are that that we we're not Dararth. You know, we're not. We, we have our own spiritual traditions. It's very important too to remember. Um, and I think art, I mean, if you look back to his ancient history, it goes, the Greeks, for example, uh, it's as much philosophy as spirituality, which I think is important to keep in mind. This, this wasn't like a book upon high telling you how things are and this is where your salvation, I mean, our myths were designed to align with reality. You know, so this isn't, uh, which I think is a you know, healthy way to look at to look at life and spirituality. If, if your spirituality is not aligned with the physical universe, there's some, something wrong. So I think our, our myths are designed and our, our, our past, you know, if you look at the Greeks, they had this idea of like a world soul and a creator and that then these different beings, which we would call like, you know, gods or different kinds of spiritual beings, they kind of all exist in this one continuum in humanity, and I, th I really resonate with that because when I'm in the when dealing with plant spirits, like there's there's definitely spirits here. And I think the Greeks had a really you know concrete way of describing why that exists. Whereas and I think it also explains it to the Western mind maybe in a way other traditions wouldn't. That this world soul you know always communicating with us in different ways. That that God never communicates to you directly, but always indirectly through these different beings, and sometimes maybe your dreams or your own conscious, or it might be, you know, the plan of, the plant spirit of Wachuma or Ayahuasca, you know, so, yeah, I think it's a very interesting tradition.
Yeah, even, for, I mean, it, w w what we consider, like, the field of psychology or psychiatry, I mean, as you were mentioning, Jung was one of the, the, the primary figures, some would say the figure. And it was interesting because he thought he was going crazy for a while, for, from what I understand, because he was having these dreams of, like, death and blood on a mm. massive scale. Uh, and, and he thought he was maybe like schizophrenic or something. And then World War One yeah. happened and he was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going crazy. It was actually a premonition. Right. And that's also, <clears throat> you know, he had already been interested in these different traditions. And, and then he really started kind of going very deeply into yeah. a lot of the symbolism and myth and archetype. Um, it is very interesting. And uh, I'm curious what you think, because I think that is a really important point, um, is it seems like in the West, we've gotten to a point where we really promote these like ideas of diversity and equity and, you know, the, the idea of othering someone else or not being accepting of someone mm. else is like the worst thing. I mean, we've, mm. we've really gotten to a point where mm. we hold those ideas to be very high. Um, <clears throat> And yet, at the same time, you know, and a lot of that is kind of like this blending of culture. Like, you can't look at someone, even like I was talking about in the yeah. beginning, like if you ask someone where you're from, that's considered offensive now. Yeah. This kind of idea that you were a bit alluding to, that we're all the same, that we all are consumers, we're all yeah. just a wheel in a system and there are no differences and everything needs to be equal. And yet, at the same time, we celebrate indigenous cultures but they're always like other indigenous mm -hmm. cultures and and we say you know i mean it was even fascinating when i came down to the amazon uh, i remember leading a group into the jungle and, and this woman who was from the u.s she saw a piece of plastic on the ground and she was so offended like mm. you know that, that these people were littering and they were supposed to be so pure yeah and meanwhile, I'm sure the amount of trash that she generates on a daily yeah. basis, you know, far, far exceeds that. Um, but it just kind of disappears yeah. somewhere. Um, but this idea that we really seem to have a split, I mean, even when we talk about indigenous people, we, we, we picture a certain thing. And it's kind of this, almost this thing that's frozen in time. Mm -hmm. And there is no evolution and there shouldn't be an evolution and it should stay stagnant. And yet for our own cultures, we think the opposite. We think that it should always be evolving. It should mm -hmm. always be progressive. We shouldn't hold on to any of these identities because these identities uh, are bad for us. Um, do you have any sense of kind of like where that, that split is coming from? Because it's kind of alluding to what you're talking about. That, and even what we were talking about in the beginning, that there is a real power in tradition of, mm. of, of your roots, of, of knowing where you come from. And even with this idea of authority, like we were talking about, like that the biggest atrocities of the 20th century came from people who thought that your roots were evil mm -hmm. and that those should all be given up to this idea of a greater good, of forgetting the past, forgetting religion, forgetting who you are, forgetting class and having everyone equal. And this idea of where we come from is very important. And it's, um, you know, it, it is a very kind of indigenous worldview. I mean, I, I've, I've told this story a number of times on the podcast, but the guy who I have a great deal of respect for is his, his name and title is Amika. He comes from a group of people in the Amazon called the Tubu. 
And, and the story, the myth, is vitally important yeah. for them. They, they actually say, you know, any time they would work with the plant before, they always tell the story, every single mm-hmm. time, um, without fail. And, and it, it almost seems like laborious, like repetitive, yeah. but every single time. Every time you would take that, you tell the story. Every yeah. time you take that, you tell the story. The story may be a half an hour, an hour long, yeah. but every time you tell it. Um, but, you know, one of, the, one of their mythologies is that... Um, that these higher kind of star beings that interestingly came from Sirius heeded the call of the suffering mm-hmm. of humanity and transcended the 12 dimensions of time and space on this primordial anaconda canoe. Mm-hmm. And on this canoe, they brought these plant medicines. And they, they said that these plant medicines served humanity because the reason humanity was suffering was because they forgot who they are mm-hmm. and where they come from. So there's this deeply ingrained belief that... The knowledge of who you are, the knowledge of where you come from is vitally important and that that's passed down through myth, through story, through ancestors. And they also have this really beautiful story of the time we're moving into, which is called the Dirawamasa, the children of the new dawn. And they would say it's the people who are all different shapes and color, well, not shapes, but all different colors, Uh, who bridge the medicine of the four directions mm. to create a new earth. And I think that's th- there's something really interesting in that. They're not saying create a new medicine, or they're not saying um, find the medicine that's best. Mm. They're speaking to this idea that every direction, the north, the south, the east, mm. the west, has medicine, yeah. and that one isn't more important or less important that they're all important, and the time that we're moving into is the people who can bridge those medicines, mm. who can create a new maloka, which is also symbolic for, for, for the earth, for the universe, for yeah. time and space, very much like here in the Andes, this idea of Pachamama, which isn't just the earth, it's also right. this quality of time and space, eternity. But, but really this idea of like, you know, all of these things are pointing towards this idea of really honoring traditions or right. remembering who you are, where you come from. And yet it's, I know there's a big question, but it seems like in a lot of Western culture, we've gotten away from that. And we almost look at it like it's a bad thing. Yeah, it's very interesting because I wonder where this comes from. Like, well, one, I think it's convenient for the power structure, right? You can um, manipulate the masses if they don't have roots, don't have tradition, there's single, you can it's just the present moment. It's kind of what 1984 is made of. There's, there's no moment but the present. The past can be changed at will. Um, so I think in some ways it's very disconcerting that we don't have that. And I think it's convenient for the power structure, but I also think there's something in the Western mind, too, somehow has evolved that we... It's like the French Revolution. You know, they destroyed the churches or made them like churches of reason, destroyed the statues, uh, persecuted priests and nuns, and the whole thing was based on reason. They made a whole new calendar... Uh, starting at the French Revolution or in, in the whole like worship of reason, which you know is, is fascinating. And, and this is this rejection of the past, rejection of what they were. And um, you know, obviously, I, I mean, I'm not Christian anymore, but I look at that as like horrifying of what they did. You know, it's still part of you. I was thinking of Stalin in the, in the Russian revolutions to reject that past and. The new communist man is totally moldable by the government. You know, totally, you know, once again, no traditions, no religion. I remember hearing that they would make whole musicals with, like, industrial sounds, like like whistles from factories and things like this. And the whole past is gone, a whole new revolution. You know, like, and then you don't really see that in other cultures unless 
you know, communism comes there, like the Chinese Communist Revolution. Um, so it's interesting to see that you know, you look at the people here with their tradition, and that that's so important to them, and it's a strength to them. And to to be honest, for these tribes to survive in the jungle, this tradition, you can understand why it's so critical with this, with modernism all around, with you know the big cities that draw young people, with cell phones and everything else. This is what you have to hold on to as a people. Right? This is what this is what keeps you whole. Without that. You you lose yourself as a people, and I think you look at the United States. You just watch the TV, you look at the media. The longer I'm away from it, the more horrifying it gets. You know, like you see these people. Um, there's no tradition. There's no spiritual sense. You know, sometimes I wish that someone come on TV and goes, "Hey, we're we're all Americans. We'll get through this." You know, how often do you hear that? It's always demonizing the enemy. But I think it comes from a fundamental lack of even the American tradition, which I think even. 50 years ago, you know, he might say, like, hey, this political party, I don't agree with them, but, you know, they're all Americans, we're all in this together, and we'll figure this out, and, you know, maybe my party will win next time or something. And, you know, that's not the case. Now it's life or death. If the other guy wins, it's the end of the world, and those people are evil. So I think that the tradition definitely brings a culture together and it solidifies the people. And when you lose that, you lose so much of essence. And I think our tradition goes way past America. It goes back thousands of years. And I think that's the advantage of, of studying these things and learning these things and you know, having your old traditions. Well, it's a little prayer or you know, thankful to your ancestors that, that we should have these traditions as well. And then we bring these back into our lives that we'll be healthier for it spiritually. And it might not resonate right away. It might even feel a little weird, but the more you do it, it's not making sense. When you were speaking about the Greeks, use this word reality, and, and it reminded that, that, you know, a lot of their spiritual traditions were based in reality. Mm -hmm. And um, it reminded me of a quote by who was considered the great samurai, uh, Musashi, and mm -hmm. he says, uh, reality is not what you want it to be. It is what it is, mm -hmm. and you must bend to its power mm -hmm. or live a lie. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe kind of moving into martial arts, I mean, he was a samurai, and, yeah. and that's where a lot of his, his cosmovision, his worldview came from. Mm. And I find something very powerful in martial arts, and that quote really resonates. And, you know, so we, we came to know each other through jujitsu, and we were kind of talking about this in the beginning, too, like some of these, like, initiatory rites, especially for men. Mm. You saw this in a lot of cultures. Um, disciplinary training, leadership, uh, working on strength, working on discipline, yeah. learning what sacrifice is, what hard work is, and, and learning what's real. And, and, and I find jiu-jitsu very, very powerful in that way because it is intellectual. I mean, you know, as, uh, as we know, like yeah. you have to learn in class and use your mind and problem solve. It's... It's really, a, it, it's, I mean, I know probably people will get offended when I say this, but, but it's much more complex than even the most complex game, which we think yeah. of, which is chess. Yeah. I mean, jiu-jitsu is far more complex. There's far more possibilities. There's yeah. far more uh, strategies. The, 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 you're not just using the mind, you're using the entire human body. And, right. um, um, but a big thing that, that I think jiu-jitsu is really important is, 
even though it, it is of the mind, you know, a lot of what we consider the mind is we often think about things of like university or, you know, higher education. Mm. And a lot of that is very theoretical. I mean, mm. you can sit around in a classroom and debate ideas all day long. Mm. And even a lot of ideas that prove to be untrue are still propagated. And yeah. when we're talking about things like communism, there's still people who propagate that yeah. because there's an idea that it just hasn't been done correctly. Yeah. Um, without really understanding the fundamental nature of it as yeah. well. And I think jiu-jitsu is really powerful in that way because you can have whatever theory you want, they're all valid, yeah. but you see right then and there whether it works or not, yeah. and it's visceral. Yeah. And you, you can keep believing in a theory, but you're going to keep losing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unless it works. And then yeah. you have to adapt the theory and change. And it very much teaches you about reality. It teaches you about laws of nature, about mm. size, strength, effort, work mm. ethic, uh, dedication, yeah. uh, age, time, mm. strength, uh, speed, uh, creativity, you know, all of these things. And, and, and the consequences are also quite devastating. Yeah. Like if you don't do it, you get hurt or you yeah. lose yeah. or, you know, you have to go home and be like, fuck, you know, I got submitted. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so, you know, I, I know you, you've been uh, being a lot more interested in jiu-jitsu. What is it about that, that art that, that, uh, that you found so, so appealing? Well, for one, it really brought me back to like... Uh, Kind of like Marine Corps days, just that physicality of the visceralness of it. The fact you win or lose, and there's, you know, it's just you. You're not a team sport. You, you won or lost yourself. And um, the physicality of it. So the brain map and QEGs, and that's interesting. I love about Young, and and I read so much, but to get in the ring or to fight on the mat, that's that's a whole different thing. And it's. Uh, it affects you a whole different way. I think it's been as healing for me as any kind of plant medicine, to be honest. It's changed my life. I, I love it. Um, I, I especially like jiu-jitsu. I was a black belt taekwondo, and I did some Marine Corps martial arts. But jiu-jitsu, you spar every time, after every class, and you always test yourself. And like you said, you know, I might have an idea that this move's going to work. It might not work at all. Or it might work great. You know, it depends. And then I'll, if it doesn't work, I'll retry and do something else. Or you know, someone else might have a strategy that was working in jiu-jitsu, and... Someone else does something that you know changes it up, and all of a sudden I have to readjust. So it's constantly evolving, and who you go against is always building you up because there's every everyone has their own style, their own size, their own strengths and weaknesses. So it's been so fun just um, comparing, you know, competing against different people and seeing myself. And for me, it's a practical. It's it's an art, but it's also self defense. It's 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 a weapon if I need it, so I can be more confident. I was always pretty confident, but like now jiu-jitsu, like, I'm like, okay, the situation happens, I know what, you know, I always know what to do, or like, um, if I'm in a fight and it ends up on the ground, you know, before, I'm like, okay, I probably don't want to go into the ground as a wrestler, but with the jitsu I have a lot more confident if I'm in a fight and it goes to the ground, I'm able to handle myself, so that's, that's really cool, too, I thought it was like always kind of like a missing part of all that, um, and once again, I think we're talking about before, I think it's fundamental to nature, especially human, male nature, to have that warrior ethos, and I think jiu-jitsu is a great way to express that and be part of that touch that, because I think it's also a deeply spiritual aspect. You know, we, we always think of spiritual as, you know, maybe some new age kumbaya type stuff, but, you know, being a warrior to a samurai, like, that's a deeply spiritual path. It's not to be taken lightly. 
and it involves a lot of discipline. So I think all those things come together to like really, yeah, I love jujitsu. So. Yeah, and when you look at the history, you know, from it seems like what's the case where we trace martial arts back originally was from India. Mm-hmm. It was very much a spiritual practice, mm-hmm. and it spread to China, mm-hmm. and it's why today even like the Chinese martial arts are they were developed and practiced by the religious people, the monks. Mm-hmm. You still have today like Shaolin Kung Fu or Wudong Kung Fu. Yeah. These are the spiritual communities of China spread to Japan and became, you know, the, the martial arts of the samurai. Right. And, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of a, it's also this interesting thing, kind of we were talking about like forgetting our roots. We, we seem to also have forgotten and whether it's by design or good intention, but you know, in all of these ideas of myth, of story, of spirituality, like when you, when you like even taking something like the Tao Te Ching, the, the, the very opening verse of the Tao Te Ching, well, one, it's uh, <laughs> basically if you speak about the Tao, uh, you're, you're not speaking about the Tao. Um, but then it, it it goes into this idea that that the Tao gives birth to the One, and that's very symbolic. Like the unmanifest gives birth to the manifest. To this idea of oneness, even God is a is once separated from. Uh, because it's reducing something that's that's unreducible into something mm. that's reduced into the one, and then the one gives birth to the two. This idea of duality mm. of, of day and night mm-hmm. that everything needs its opposite, man and woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the two gives birth to the three, which you know is the Trinity, which is very common. This idea of past, present, future, yeah. of of birth, life, death. Yeah. Um, and then the three gives birth to the ten thousand things, which is an uh, an old esoteric number for for infinity for mm. all things, but this idea of duality is something we 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 seem to have gotten away from, and uh, you know very much these ideas of of man and woman, masculine mm. and feminine energies, which is the most indigenous worldview there exists. Yes. I mean everything is spoken of in terms of duality, right. um, and. You know, of course, like every human being embodies different amounts of masculine and feminine energy, but certainly the male embodies that masculine archetype, the female right. embodies that feminine archetype. Um, I was interviewed the other day, and I think I was talking about it, but it, but I, I was remembering when I was in the jungle, and, and uh, I, I adopted this, uh, this kind of wild cat, and she was a female, and then a few weeks later I realized she was pregnant, mm. and she had, uh, uh, she had kittens, and there was five of them, and um, there was a significant difference between the male and the female kittens, mm. you know, and, and I think we know this. Like, yeah. There's a reason why you would castrate your male dog uh, because there's a certain energy that they have that the, the female dog doesn't have. Um, but we, we seem to, we're uncomfortable speaking about these things now. And I, I remember even when I was uh, uh, facilitating ayahuasca ceremonies, they would have women's circles mm-hmm. or women, women's only groups. And, and that was seen as a very normal thing because mm. there was a reason behind it, because mm. it was seen that women 
had certain traumas that maybe men didn't have, or right. women were more comfortable around women. There's a reason why you would have that. Yeah. Um, but there was never a men's only circle, right. <laughs> because that was seen as somehow like not useful or not relevant. Um, I was eventually, they, they, they decided to run one, and I was asked to run it. And at the time, I also didn't understand like why a man would want to come to a men's only circle. Yeah. What, what are potential issues that they were dealing with? Why wouldn't yeah. you want to be around yeah. women? Um, but the, the more I, I really sit with it and also look around the world, I, I do see that there's, there, there do seem to be problems that men are facing. Uh, again, when you look at things like suicides, yeah. uh, um, you know, there, there's really a whole host of issues. Uh, you look at like lowering of testosterone levels and yeah, things. Sure. And, um, but it seems like we have gotten away from things that really help or teach or define what it means to be a man. Uh, things like responsibility, as we we're talking about, like with martial arts, discipline, strength, hard work, um, and and that that ability to to actually be physical. Mm -hmm. You know, and I saw that with the with the kittens. Right. The, the the male kittens were all over the place. The, yeah. the female was too, but not nearly to the extent yeah. the males were. Um, you know, I would have to discipline the males in a different way. You know, yeah. they, they were much more testing, provoking. Yeah. They, they, you know, the, the cat would jump on there and it has to be like, no, and, and it got yeah. it. But then it'd jump on there <laughs> and it, no. You know, yeah. and it would have to try everything. Whereas the female cat, like, you'd jump on a few things and I'd tell it, no, and okay. You know, yeah. um, you know and, and I think a lot of the issue arises is people look at that in terms of very black and white things. And they look at themselves and they say, well, I have some of those qualities too. And, and the reality is we yeah. do. We all have, you know, you can't categorize everyone. But there are, as you mentioned, these ideas of myth, of archetypes. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, when you look at martial arts or jiu-jitsu, it is predominantly men. Mm -hmm. There are women, you know, and those women gain a tremendous amount. And, right. and I practice, I practice with a lot of women, and it's extremely beneficial to them. But it does seem like there's something in the male that really benefits from that, that really needs that outlet of, like, physicality. Um, you know, um, th there's a... There's a guy who you're probably familiar with, Jordan Peterson, and he has this quote, and it, it, I find it very powerful, and he says... Uh, um, if you think strong men are problematic, wait until you see what weak men are capable of. Mm. And, and that's very powerful. You know? I and I think sometimes we, we demonize kind of these archetypal male qualities like strength, aggression, discipline, order, uh, clarity. Um, but those serve a, a super important function. And if those are not trained or honed or really honored, the consequences of that are far worse. You know, much like we were talking about, like with communism, like those, the the, the road to hell is paved with the good, good intentions. Yeah. Like a lot of this kind of wanting to get rid of some of these qualities, we see that as being more beneficial. But the reality is the consequences are, are far more detrimental. And and I think you know it's interesting because. You know, right now in the valley, there's there there have been these these strikes going on, and uh, the the closing of a lot of roads, and not allowing people to pass. 
And it's interesting because I, I find a lot of people support that. And again, it, it's a very complex issue. You mm. know, there, there, there's a certain history here, mm. uh, you know, a very bad history in a lot of ways. Um, but also going back to this idea of principle, and I think that's something that martial arts really teaches, is this idea of, well, well what is right? What is mm. wrong? And, and I think through the art of disciplining yourself and, and realizing what violence is, you actually begin to not become that. Um, there's this quote in the Bible which says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was quite strange. But I actually heard that it was mistranslated and, and the, the translation had to do with sword bearers. And it wasn't that the meek shall inherit the earth, it's the sword bearers who choose to sheathe their mm. sword to those the earth mm. shall be inherited. And that also really resonates. And, and so I think one of the things that the martial arts shows is, is again, this principle. And actually, when you learn what violence is, you also learn to not be violent. Right. Um, you know, and even using this, this, this example of like the closure, it's like, you can justify, you can sympathize with people, but when you stop people's freedom of movement, that's an act of violence. Mm -hmm. And actually the people who I've seen who've been the most strongly opposed to that are actually martial artists. Mm -hmm. Because I think in a, in a very fascinating way, when you practice martial arts, you become very anti-violence. Mm -hmm because you really know it, you know, in a very visceral way, and it's something you don't want to replicate. You're actually trying to overcome that within yourself to transmute right. that energy into something beautiful. And when people don't experience that, then they're much more prone to be violent, to, to hurt people, to suppress people, um, to use power in an unhealthy way. Um, I know that was a kind of a big rant, but, but do you have any thoughts on that about yeah. That? Just to start off, the Jordan Peterson quote is great. I think that's right on. I think the, I think it's in my personal life. You know, um, a man that's confident, and strong, and confident in himself, you don't have to worry about that man. The man that's weak and jealous, you know, that's that's the character that's going to hurt you or slight you or, you know, things like that. So I think yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You you want strong men, you don't want weak men. Um, you also think of. The masculine archetype and the female archetype. There's a strong, healthy archetype. There's also a shadow of the masculine archetype. Same thing with the female. I think modern society thinks the female is pure good and light, and then the masculine archetype is just the shadow. Well, both have their shadow and both have their light. We all need to be aware of that. Um, I think as far as violence, I think, yeah, it's a primal. I remember when I was so taekwondo as a kid, and it was very emphasized that this isn't a game, this isn't you're not here to beat people up, that this is, is serious and you should always avoid a fight at all costs. This is the last resort. Um, I think anyone who's been around a violence appreciates, you know, what's, what's capable of and what nonviolence is. Uh, I think violence is always a very serious thing and you should be, as you learn what you can do, you also learn, like you said, to, to avoid violence. You know, the more I, more skills I pick up, the more like, okay, this is, this is some dangerous stuff. I'm not going to use this thing lightly, only if I absolutely need to. Whereas if you're just, a, you know, you don't know anything, you're drunk, you might throw a couple punches, but if you know how to actually hurt or maim someone, you know, you have a lot more respect for that and probably avoid situations where you might need to use that. Um, at the same time, I think any civilization wants to preserve itself we live in physical reality and needs 
men, especially men, but men and women, that can capable of violence. This is a fundamental fact of reality. Kind of like the, the samurai you said, what's his name? Musashi. Musashi. Um, that you, know, you can't make your own reality. That you have to go to the Tao and adapt to what it is. And the fact is that in history, that civilizations that could not be violent or had no one that could act in violence would probably be destroyed by the neighboring tribe that could act that way. So, yeah, to be mindful and to hold these things and what they are, that these things are important in your lessons, only to be used when absolutely necessary to defend your tribe, your civilization, and your family, but also not to use it lightly. Um, yeah, I think it's a very valuable lesson. I think also look back on so much of, you know, we, as Americans, we have this swagger about us. We kind of like these, like these cowboys, where we would like to idealize ourselves that way. These kind of like these, we go around the world and, um, but maybe some restraint is necessary, some reflection on what all this means. You know, we, just because America did something doesn't mean it was the right thing. I think I also have that, 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 you know, I'm not saying America's all bad either, but to have that balance of views that, okay. I guess going to a different topic here as well, but it makes me think of Vietnam War when all these movies come out, like Apocalypse Now, Platoon, and we were really reflected on what that war meant, what that violence meant. That, okay, that war happened, but what did it mean for us as people? What did it mean for them as a people? And I think in these modern wars, we don't have that reflection. We don't have that cultural reflection of the people. We move from one to the next and forgot what the last one is even about. So I think that reflection of violence, not just as an individual, but as a country, is also important. Yeah. Let me just check the time. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we're three and a half hours okay. now. <laughs> Maybe one thing, uh, you know, it's also interesting because we were talking about plant medicine and, and you know, it also reminded me because we were talking about war and what it means to be a warrior. Um, when, when I'm facilitating ayahuasca ceremonies, sometimes or always we, we would kind of have a little celebration after and, and people could like say thank you to, to the healers, to mm -hmm. the shamans, or maybe sing them a song or give them a present, something like that. And at one time it somehow turned into a Q&A, which, which we, we, we weren't trying for, but I can't remember how, but somehow it turned into that. And, um, and, and I remember this one woman asked the, 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 the healers, for lack of a better word, um, you know, when you're working on people, like I'm sure it's really hard, but I, I guess it, there's like a lot of, you know, love and light and rainbows and... And they were kind of looking at each other, and you could almost see they were a bit uncomfortable, but they were kind of confused, and they're like, no, like, we're, we're warriors. Like, mm. when we're working on someone, we're, we're like in combat, we're in warfare, we're trying mm. to clean these, these demons and dark energies. Yeah. And, and, and I think that was really shocking for that person, because they, they had a very different, I think a lot of people have a right. very different view. And, and you know, it's something I don't talk about a lot, but even in my own work, like, that's a huge part of it. Yeah. It's, um, you know, my, my dream space every night when I'm working with people, when I'm going in, it, it's a lot of fighting and battling yeah. and ordering. And um, and again, the, the, these are archetypal myths. I mean, right. from Christianity to, to, to Judaism to, to every religion, you know, it talks about this primordial battle between between the light and the dark. And that that is reality. That that you know, often even when we think of God, we think of well, just you know, butterflies and rainbows. Mm. And yet there is the shadow. That's part of the duality. That's part of the world made manifest. Is 
is, is also the, the, the evil, the darkness, the, the, the violence, the, the rape, the murder, the, the jealousy, the envy, you know, all of these things. And, and that, that actually that role of the warrior is, is, is actually a fundamental role because it is the one who's trying to overcome that, who's trying right. to transmute that into the good. But if you don't have that role, then there's just darkness. There's nothing to, to go against that, to oppose it. No, I think that's. I think it's exactly right. I think the Western mind, like you said, so many people kind of have this New Age idea of it's all light and rainbows, and these shamans are just these happy jungle people. There, you go down and live in the jungle, you realize it's a wild place. Like these shamans are in battles all the time, in battles in ways we can't understand. I mean. You hear these stories, they sound so fantastic, but how they're true, yeah, I listen to them like, well, he's saying it, and, I, and you live down there long enough, like anything's possible down there. So I mean, I've, when you're down in the jungle, like the, there is light and there's dark and there's evil. And I think that, I think Jung would talk about this as well, that it's so hard for the modern mind to really understand and accept evil. And I think that's one of the reasons probably you have PTSD too. Like, people like, when they see evil in their life, like true evil, so shocking that they didn't believe it existed um, that it overwhelms the system. And I think this is more of a symptom of modern humanity than the ancients because they're probably more practical and realistic. There's very much evil in the world. Um, whether it was the Greeks or the Christians, you know, like the temptations of Satan and evil were all around them all the time. Maybe it was, I think I've read that, you know, we suffer from a lack of meaning. Maybe they had too much meaning, like they, they had the evil approaching them all the time, but the fact is, is, when we lack, we don't see that duality anymore, become this, become so removed from it, we forget it exists. And that fight against evil is also fundamentally important to our existence. Because if you don't believe it exists, then you can't resist it. And then, those, then your morality becomes a grab bag of whatever you want for the moment, I suppose. And then you become a victim of true evil that does exist because you don't believe it can and then you're vulnerable to it. Well, maybe ending on a more positive note. <laughs> <laughs> I think like you said though, you know, it, it is really important to also realize like all of the good and, and you know, by, by most objective measures, we do probably live in the best time in human history in terms of uh, not having to struggle, not having to, to struggle for food, for basic necessities. In terms of war, there's less war now than there's ever been in, in human history. Um, and, you know, it, I think some people take this to mean like life is easy. And it's not to say life is easy. There's always struggle. But, but I think it is important to keep relativity in mind. I, I think Steven Pinker does really good work yeah. with that. Um, and, and always there's going to be new challenges that are presented, but, but that's also the idea of evolution, is that hopefully we are evolving, <laughs> and hopefully we are evolving for the good. And, and also going back to that idea of ancestors, like really honoring our ancestors, because they sacrificed in a way that, that I think most people wouldn't be willing to sacrifice these days, you know, just uprooting themselves from their yeah. land. I mean, I think of my grandfather, uh, you know, People today complain about going to work for eight hours. Mm -hmm. like my grandfather, he started working when he was eight years old. Mm -hmm. Went into World War II when he was 17. He had to get his mother's signature because he wasn't mm -hmm. 18. 
uh, you know, fought in World War II, came back, married my grandmother, got a job at Sears Roebuck, yeah. worked, you know, eight, nine hour days, came home at night under the spotlight at night, built his house by hand mm. with, you know, that was before power tools. Right. Um, you know, th things that I just think uh, people really take for granted today. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, all, also having that positive outlook, honoring our ancestors. I think these things are really important. And all of these technologies, you yeah. know, that we have access to, plant medicines, uh, the, you know, brain mapping, all of these tools and, and the ability to share, even doing, doing what we're doing now, getting information out to people. It's, it's, it's quite an extraordinary time. Yeah, I'm really, I mean, talk to your grandfather, I'm grateful for people like him and for him, I mean, we are so, our ancestors worked so hard just to create the civilization we have now and to be appreciative of that. Like you said, I wouldn't be down here if it wasn't for technology, I wouldn't even hear about the stuff we do, but now with technology, we'll be able to get this information out here and I'm so grateful for these tools, neurofeedback like you said, but plant medicines and um, to be able to talk to people like you and to reach out and communicate these ideas and just to appreciate life, like uh, hopes of virtue. Uh, it's been a virtue, it's a fundamental virtue for who we are, to be hopeful for the future. Appreciation, gratitude is a virtue. And we should emphasize and live in those virtues. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, beautiful, Luke. If people are interested in learning more about you or reaching out to you, what's the, what's the best way to doing that? So NeuroEnlightenment is the website for our type of neurofeedback brain training. We emphasize um, spiritual states and spiritual training. We work both with retreats. So with retreats that have people come through, like the, what we've been doing now is pre and post maps, kind of an add-on if someone wants to do it. Uh, often a lot, adds a lot of validation to their experience. And they go, okay, this is more than just a psychological experience. I can see actual positive changes in the brain. And uh, my friend and I are starting up a project called Daga's Right, where we're doing uh, emphasizing the Germanic and Indo-European traditions and other traditions as well. So we're, we're do a podcast eventually, but right now it's just a Facebook page and a website. So, so Daga's right and Neuro Enlightenment. Daga's is a word, D-A-G-A-Z. Yeah, I mean, that just reminded me of another fascinating topic. I mean, that link, you know, we even call it Indo-European. I mean, there's a whole history out there that, that I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with. No, it's well. beautiful because it goes back all the way because this culture existed for thousands and thousands of years. And I think the original language group is like 40,000 years old and goes all across the continent, all the way to India. That's what we call it, Indo-European. Mm -hmm. And so much wisdom is from there. And then we, we want to compare it to other traditions as well. But you have Zoroastrianism, you have the Vedic traditions, you have like the, like the traditions of Rome and philosophies of Rome and Greece, you know, all the way up to you know the Germanic traditions and throughout Europe. And so, yeah, we want to go into all that and explore it and, you know, because we've both been to this for a while, but finally we're making a project to, uh, to go into it more and talk about it for, and tell people about it. Well, great, Luke. This, this was great, man. We went, uh, we went three and a half hours. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> uh, I think there's a whole lot more we could talk about. Unfortunately, I, I've got a group I've got to run. Yeah, but, sounds um, good. But yeah, we'll have to do round two. And, and thank you again for coming on and for the work you're doing and, and sharing with everyone. And uh, it, it's been a pleasure. There, there's, I think there's a whole bunch more we could talk about. So yeah, I we'll appreciate it. It's been two. fun. So thank you. Yeah. Great, man. Well, right, I'll, I'll see you uh, tomorrow then. All right. Jiu -jitsu. Yeah, jiu -jitsu. Sounds good. <laughs> 
All right, everyone, that's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, it was really a pleasure for me to sit down with Luke, have him sharing his story. I think we got in some really fascinating topics. Uh, a lot of the topics, I think we, we, we just touched the, the tip of the needle in a way. So I think there's a lot more to go into. Um, again, unfortunately, I, I, I had to run. I'm, I'm running a dieta right now. We, we still went three and a half hours. So I know for a lot of you, that's, that's quite long as it is. Uh, but definitely, I think there's, there's a lot of material for round two. So uh, thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that show. As always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good option. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's uh, maybe four or five different tiers you can sign up for. And those tiers also give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Um, that's a really big help to me to, uh, to to really allow me to continue to to film, to produce, to edit, to, to publish all of these shows. So <clears throat> to all of the patrons, to all the people, who are doing that as always uh, thank you very much for your support and if you are able to do that thank you in advance um, there's also the ability to direct do an via paypal I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes and if you're not able to do that um, always just helping with the algorithms is a really big help which allows the show to get out to a bigger audience so if you're uh, watching this the video version especially on youtube uh, subscribing to the show turning on the notification bell liking the video leaving any questions or comments in the comment section all of those things really help with the algorithms. Uh, the show is also on Rumble and Odyssey, so you can check it out there. Um, and if you're listening to this, Apple Podcasts and Spotify are still the big ones. So subscribing or following to the show and on Apple Podcasts, leaving a starred rating and a short review is also a really big help. So that's it. Uh, I'm trying to think of my next guests. Um, I believe I have a woman, Melanie Reinhardt, coming on, who's a really fascinating book, uh, wrote a really fascinating book on uh, Chiron. Um, she works a lot with astrology. Uh, a few episodes ago, I interviewed uh, Chris Killam, uh, the medicine hunter, um, super interesting guy, and um, I'm supposed to have his wife, Zoe Ellen, come on. So that should be a really fascinating conversation too. Uh, and beyond that, I'm not sure. Um, so I think that's it for now. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you all on the next one. <laughs>